and then we convoyed back to base, about three clicks south of Habania. They had called up the first driver in the Hummer, called out that there was a dude standing on the side of the road past curfew. Well, they went through the standard ROEs where they crashed. Threw a crash out, first turret gunner through the crash. To stun him, scare him, get him away, didn't move. Turret two, lazed him, sent some pop shots around the area to see if he would move, didn't do anything. So that basically means that the next car in the convoy would be me. So this is my time where I'm turning my turret and my um, 50 caliber towards that dude so I can smoke him. And then right before I even got the chance to consider pushing the trigger, we hit a 155 pressure plated IED, so we say. It was the scariest fucking thing I've ever been through in my life. It was so violent, it was so fast, it was so powerful. It shot me straight out of the turret into the sky. That's why I got my nickname Birdman, it's because I went flying. The fireball came blasting through the cockpit, sending shrapnel through all of us, burning everybody inside. We got first, second, third degree burns. Just complete, utter chaos and mass. Blew the front out of our Hummer off. The Hummer went up, came back down, just smashed right into the dirt, because we were probably moving 50, 55 miles an hour. So you think about taking that kind of an impact at that speed and coming back down. How the dirt rolls all over everything, covers you just complete this array. I can't find my gun. I'm just a mess. And I'm, after I went flying, I land on the ground. And I'm just trying to make sense of what just happened. So Never went conscious out. for the whole thing. Conscious for the whole thing. I remember everything minus the split second right after I remember the fireball coming right through the cabin. I just, was it. It was like dark for a second and then back. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent eight years as a U.S. Navy SEAL. He is the founder of the 7X Project, also the founder of Sons of the Flag, and founder of the Bird's Eye View Project. You do a lot of finding. Now he basically jumps off shit for a living. He's Toucan Sam's second cousin twice removed and has the most fitting nickname in all the SEAL teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Ryan Birdman Parrot. Always a pleasure to be here with you, brother. Thanks for coming on. I know uh, we've been talking about getting together for a while now and uh, glad glad we could finally make it happen. I'm glad I could finally make it happen. Uh, what is the closest call you've ever had during a uh, parachuting excursion? Great question. So... Hi. Two come to mind right out of the gate. One in base jumping. I jumped uh, a mountain board off the Prine Bridge in Twin Falls, Idaho. And this is why you have to have routines when you're training. And put, you know, and I, I was somewhat new to the sport, so doing something like this was extraordinarily dangerous. I don't think it's ever been done before. But anyway, I had a mountain board attached to my feet, which is heavy, so it pendulums you when you open and go to full line stretch. Um, but I didn't stow my toggles. I didn't pay attention when I was packing. And so the second that it, the parachute came out the full line stretch, my toggles had a double toggle fire into the sky. So now I have no brake lines. Holy shit. So now I'm skirting at a 90 degree right. So I'm facing and I'm flying right towards a mountain cliff. I've got a mountain board on my feet that's penduling me. So I'm swinging like this. I'm about 100 feet from the deck. All kinds of undulating rock underneath me. Nowhere to land. And I have no brake lines or steering lines. So I have to use risers. So I was kind of... One of those scenarios where I had to get out of it pretty quick and think, and that's why the skills and the training and why you should do minimum 200 skydives before you get in base jumping. 
So I ended up pulling out and landing it just fine, and it was great. No, uh, no injuries or anything. Not on that one. No. You shit yourself. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> sure did. Blew my anal glands everywhere. Yeah. Uh, have you had? I mean, are, are there a, a number of like near near mishaps or uh, or almost killed yourselves that that you've had happen? Yeah, I think if you're in the sport long enough, you're going to have those issues. And you know, some of my buddies who are some of the best in the world at this stuff that train me. I mean, they still to this day have certain things because they're either trying to push the limits to see what they're capable of or they want to feel hard again or, yeah. you know, it just happens that they overcalculated, undercalculated on a line when they're flying a wingsuit and base jumping. And, and I was one of my best buddies, um, who's like one of the world's best base jumping wingsuit pilots, was just in town and he was telling me a story about him flying a line that he knew better, but he did it anyway, just was in it and realized right when he was in it that he was too low. And so he could have killed him and his buddy. And so he ended up steering on his own and his buddy just had the wherewithal to say, I'm going to go the opposite direction. He pulled out of it, but you can still get yourself into these scenarios. That's why uh, I put up like an error box now around everything I do. So when you say like a GoPro camera can see, it looks like you're skirting the earth and you're really 200 feet above the deck instead of 20 feet. Yeah. Well, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, let's just go have fun with it instead of being a YouTube sensation Yeah. and live to do it again. And so whatever the standard is, like if I have a 15 second rock drop before I impact, I'm going to climb higher and I'm going to jump higher so that I can have more time so that I can actually pull higher and have a safer outcome. So, I mean, I think that uh, at least for me, and I, I assume a lot of people listening may, may come as a surprise, the, the amount of almost physics or math like planning that goes into, into jumping that way, that sounds like there's a fair bit. A ton. There's, that's the misconception about base jumpers. They're a bunch of hippies and that. And I'm not a hippie. I mean, I, yeah. I'm a military guy regimented and that. But when you look at what you're doing and you look at the fact that you have one canopy, you don't have two in the skydiving. It's just one canopy, so it has to work. So you have to pack methodically, like I mentioned earlier. Um, you have to pay attention to the exact line that you want to fly. You have to walk it. So you're thinking about you have a huge terrain. You're 8,000 meters or whatnot, and you're not 8,000 meters, 800 meters, 1,000 uh, meters you're going to walk that thing and look at it to make sure you've got the altitude you need to fly it. You're going to ask people, you're going to do all the due diligence before you jump it. Yeah. And then you're going to think twice about it. Cause once you leap, that's it. Yeah. Are there uh, certain just kind of Murphy's law uh, instances as well, where like, even if you've planned everything, is that where you see guys who are at the top of their game still fuck it up? Like not, not pushing the envelope necessarily, but just shit happens and something went wrong. It shouldn't have. Yeah. In 2000, uh, so like, Around 2015, 2016, I mean, we were having all kinds of deaths with the best of the best. I mean, it was a t horrible year, which basically set base jumping into being the most deadly sport in the world because of all these fatalities. And it was, it was these guys just hammering down, pushing the limits and just going in is what we call it when you just you impact. And it was because of poor decision making. Yeah. You know, so the idea for what we do is we just really look at, is it? fair to do it today or is it not? You gotta be man enough or woman enough to walk off the mountain if it's not good or if it doesn't feel good. Yeah. And so I've walked off uh, mountains before that others have jumped just because they didn't feel right. Um, but you always just gotta know that every time you leap, that's your last time. Yeah. So you gotta be smart about sure. what you're making the decision on. I know my limits though. There's certain things like there's a certain altitude. I won't jump under 200 feet. So 200 feet is my max height or my minimum height. Yeah. And I, you know, I've passed that. I'm not gonna go skirt the earth at, 10 meters, 20 meters. Is, is there a, a world record of uh, the, the lowest jump that's been made? 
<laughs> you can only tie the lowest record. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is you it? You can't beat it. I have no, I mean, so guys take it deep is what they I mean, call is, it. Is, is 120, is the, I mean, if people jump that that low? Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's guys that jump just insane stuff where it's just like it opens and then you're basically pulling your brakes and yeah. you're landing. Jeez. There's just gnarly stuff like that. And then wingsuit flying when you're doing proximity and train flying. I mean, they're legitimately skirting the earth which is absolutely insane. And you cannot really get much altitude if you have to change things up quickly. So yeah, that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> From just a straight base jumping standpoint, I mean, do, do you know what the lowest altitude is that, that has been jumped successfully? I don't know the record right now. I think that, you know, guys will pull it off and, you know, they just basically post a video and then people yeah. will chime in on it. But yeah, most people aren't going for low records. They're just, they're actually just trying to fly lines now and yeah. be positive and be in, but we're really, there's a big shift right now since all those fatalities to ensure that people are actually organizing better now. So yeah. like Switzerland created the Swiss Base Association, so you're actually regulated on how you do things because base jumping is not regulated in the United States. Yeah. It's just illegal everywhere, right? Everywhere. Well, Prime Bridge in Twin Falls, Idaho is open 24-7, 360. Oh, really? So there's 365. It's amazing. So that's oh, a fun that's bridge, 487 yeah. feet. Uh, so my next question is your favorite downtime activity. I think I know the answer, but I'll let you answer it. Yes. Skateboarding. Skateboarding. Yeah. Well, uh, so that's, but that's something that you, you never post, you know, like, do you, do you not even really talk about it out in public? I no. Know. I mean, so skateboarding for me is like my purity. It's a place where I can go and just balance myself out, shut my brain down. It's hard. It's, you know, one of those things that teaches you a lot about yourself because you're going to fall a thousand times before you get that trick. Right. And I'm not a street skater. I'm a vert ramp skater. I like to get air do flips in that, but it's very painful and you impact a lot and yeah. I'm not 20 years old anymore. Yeah. So it's getting harder. Where, uh, where do you go for that? Oh, I mean, any skate park. When I was in the SEAL teams, every time we'd go on a training trip, I would already scout out where the local skate park was. And after <laughs> we get on training, I'd be go skating. That's a fucking trip. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you street skate at all? Like just, or is it only rolling to the actual park? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> but bad. But when enough. I try to do rails or tabletops or any of that stuff, it's bad. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. That's wild, man. Uh, what's the worst thing about being a Navy SEAL? The worst thing about being a Navy SEAL? <sighs> That's a great question. I think it forces people to look at you and give you credit that you don't necessarily deserve. I think that, you know, it's, it's an amazing organization and it's the reason it has a name is because we put so much effort into it. I always say this, like you can work for five years, 10 years as a SEAL, 20 years as a SEAL, and you're putting in so much more effort than the general public that by the time you get out, you're truly burned out. Yeah. You have given every bit of yourself to it. But when you get out, people hold you to this standard and you're like, well, I just want to be left alone. Like, I don't want to be paraded around. I don't want to have to live in that environment anymore where I'm talking about this stuff. Like I just want to kind of deal with my stuff and I want to move on and I want to reinvent myself. Yeah. But you find yourself in a trap too, because you know, it's a, uh, it opens doors. It helps you move in the future. So yeah. I think that's the hardest part. It's like that anonymity thing for famous people, right? Yeah. Once they become famous, they lose anonymity and then it's over. They can't, they don't know who their true friends are. Or they're worried about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good. Uh, good point. Uh, what is your morning routine on a typical day where you're in town? It depends on how my kids wake up. <laughs> if it's a knee in the nuts at 430. Exactly. Or? It's crazy. So how old are your kids? Uh, right now I got a five-year-old boy and a two-year-old boy. That's tough. We're in the thick of it. Yeah. Morning routine, usually for depending on the day, if it's a long run, because we're training right now. So if it's a long run, I'm up at five, maybe 430. 
um, doing anywhere from 10 to 12, 15 miles. And then I get home, we have breakfast. I jump in the pool, go for a little swim, cool off, and then load up on all my proteins and nutrients that I need. Um, have breakfast with my kids. Then I go basically to work, grab coffee on the way, and then I start doing business for the day. I usually conduct about three to four hours of business per day because I can get it done if I know what my routine is, writing the schedule out the night before to attack what I want to accomplish for the day. And then that's it. Everything else is just wasted time. So then I got to focus on rehab. So then from there, on the way back home, I'll stop and go get cryo. So I cryo boost myself and it's flawless for anybody who hasn't done cryo. I mean, go the full three minutes, don't puss out, just go three minutes. And I was at two, negative 260 Fahrenheit yesterday. Yeah. And we live in Texas, 150 degrees out here. So I was like jamming. I felt so good when I got out and I walked outside and my head's spinning. I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then I'll do Norma Tech to make sure I squeeze out all the lactic acid, go home and then hang out with my kids for the rest of the day. So I'm trying to really do a work balance or work family balance life where I am in my children's life as much as possible. And if I have to push money aside or not make as much money or that, as long as I'm doing it right now where they're at the house, I'll feel good about that. So because my, you know, money will come and go, but my kids are forever. Yeah. Well, that, you know, the, the age that they're at right now is an important window. I mean, their entire childhood is, but especially while they're home, you know, all day, every day like that, that lays the foundation for everything else. Cause once they go to school, you know, they're, they're around other people more than they are you, you know, so that, that window is short and uh, super important. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's great to hear. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Oh, uh, gentlemen and ladies, are you tired of having uh, buckwheat in a leg lock as far as your downstairs is concerned? I know I was, and so I turned to Manscaped. And uh, this one, which uh, reeks of excellence, is the actual one that I shorn my sack with. Uh, this is the, the regular Manscaped model. It's got, <clears throat> if you're a really hairy bastard like I am, it's got two different guards for different lengths. They do have an ear and nose hair trimmer, which you get to be my age, uh, and that shit starts to grow. Uh, this works exceptionally well and is very gentle as, uh, also. They have the Crop Reviver. Uh, this is also known as a ball toner, which, uh, you know, if you're getting ready to do the damn thing and, um, and you want to not offend anybody, then the ball toner works great. And this is the Crop Preserver, which is ball deodorant. Uh, both of them are fantastic products. Manscaped is a hell of a brand. They're extremely supportive of veteran companies such as this one and the Mic Drop podcast. Uh, I do use the shit out of this product. It's even got this little light on it. You can hear that, ladies. I know you know what that sounds like. So I use their products. I love their products. I have for a number of years now. And uh, now that they're working with us, if you go to manscaped.com, the code is Mic Drop, all one word, capital letters, and that's for 20% off all of the ball manscaping products that you could possibly want. And again, ladies, you can use these too, because uh, God knows we all need a little bit of help down there. Um, <clears throat> where are you originally from? 
Detroit. Detroit. No shit. Yeah. Fucking eight mile over here. Huh? I was born on eight mile. Get the fuck out. I was. <laughs> yeah, Eminem's never. got nothing on me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking no shit, huh? Eight mile. Yeah. So tell me about that. It's interesting growing up in Detroit. So just like you would imagine, I mean, obviously I was not Eminem walking the alleys and throwing beats and all that stuff. That's not my, I'm not good at that. But growing up in, in Detroit in the 80s was interesting. We weren't, we weren't wealthy. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. And, but we had enough. You know, like we had a roof over our head. We had some food. And so nothing mattered, you know. Like you'd figure it out. If you didn't have tons of toys, you'd go outside and you'd play in the dirt and you'd just figure it out. Um, it wasn't necessarily as dangerous as it got when I was actually in Detroit. But growing up, I mean, my parents divorced when I was five years old, and that was quite hard because, you know, you're five years old. This is my oldest son right now, and he relies on both of us. So I didn't know how much damage that would do to me in the future, just in my head, until I started to unravel it and started to work through it. Um, but, you know, at least I was very blessed when my parents co-parented me, even though they were divorced. So we ended up moving to the outskirts of Detroit, and my life was quite interesting growing up. Did you live with one parent uh, over the other or did you split time? Yeah, split time. So that was the problem with my upbringing is that because I would move from parent's house to parent's house to get a move in with grandparents, you know, till they could get on their feet and all this stuff, I never had a chance really up until the end of middle school to truly make friends. Yeah. And that was hard. You know, you had to live in your head and you had to figure out how to play on your own. And, you know, so you lack communication skills. And so that's my biggest thing today is why I collect people, you know, because I want friends. I love friends. It's the greatest thing in the world to have friends. You're supposed to be with people. You're not supposed to be on your own. And so I just try to scoop as many people up as I can. Yeah. But not the easiest thing. And I was a failure in every subject in school. <laughs> I mean, just like most of us, we just come from these weird yeah. scenarios and then we find each other and then all of a sudden there's a pack of bald eagles looking yeah. for some prey. <laughs> that's a trip, man. Did you uh, have siblings? It's only child. Only huh? child. That had to be even more tough then, huh? Yeah, it was interesting, yeah. for sure. You don't know what you don't have, though. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I suppose that's true. Did you play uh, any sports, or was it all like... Michigan is ice hockey. Yeah. Yeah, ice hockey was the deal. I actually played pretty good ice hockey. Um, I realized quite quickly that I was not going to become a pro. That yeah. sucked. There was a guy who was twice my size who basically rung my bell. I was like, ooh, this is not for me. Yeah. But I played all through high school. I even got into the wrestling team. I got... I got my ass kicked by a midget. <laughs> he wasn't like a midget. I mean, he was the shorter guy, but he yeah. was so, so small. And I'm like, he's not going to do anything. And he wrapped me up in front of my parents and made me a little toy doll. And I was like, <laughs> I wanted to cry. I was like, that's it for me. <laughs> that's classic, man. Did, uh, did you wrestle in, in high school? Yep. Yeah. All four years or? No, one. One year. Yeah, <laughs> Until one. that time. That moment was the <laughs> definitive factor. Like, I'm out. Yeah. Was that as a, as a freshman or? No, it was my senior year. Oh, no, sure. That's when I got serious about going in the Navy and oh, okay. seal stuff. So they said, oh, a lot of these guys are polo and, and wrestling. I was like, well, we don't have polo at our school, yeah. but we got wrestling. So I'm going to do that. Yeah. No, I'm not going to do that. That's wild. <laughs> uh, were there any big ticket items growing up that really stand out as being either instrumental or super impactful that, uh, that kind of come to mind? My teacher. So this is why I'll always be coached because he proved to me that it's super valuable. You got to choose the right ones, but... You always have to be coached. And my teacher was a Vietnam Marine. He used to talk about the Marine Corps every time we go into his motivational psychology class. And dude is boisterous. He was all over the map, running around the room with the American flag, swinging it, like clothesline in your head, 
just hyper six foot six, the Marine bifocals on just a total <laughs> crazy guy. This one specific day he comes into the room, stands before us. There's no hyperness to him. And just holding the American flag. He said, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one thing better than the Marine Corps. And that's the U S Navy seals. Oh shit. And I was like, okay, I'm checking it out today. I'm going <laughs> to check the fuck in. That? What do we got? Mr. Barnes. And uh, he basically made it sound, I always say this thing, like the guys live on the moon and they breathe water and all this stuff, which, you know, we do. Yeah. And I was like, we got to go do that. So I stayed over to class and I'm like, Mr. Barnes, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And he violently laughed in my face. I'm like, what's that about? He's like, you're not even passing my class and it's an elective. <laughs> How the hell are you going to pass SEAL training? I was like, I don't know. Yeah. So that was a big moment for me. And then 9-11 was the real ticket. What, uh, what grade were you in when, when he did that? That was sophomore year. And then 9-11 was which year? Uh, so it was 2001, so that would have been my junior year. Junior year. What, uh, what was that like being in, in high school at the time? I remember, I mean, everybody remembers that moment, right? I was sitting in keyboard class, typing class, and the teacher just bolts over the tube TV, turns it on, and we never watched TV during class, so you knew it was a problem. And you see this tower just smoking, and you're like, all right, what are we making of this here? And they're putting out word, and all of a sudden you see the second tower hit. And then they say it's a possible terrorist attack. And, I mean, for me, it triggered me when I was toying around with the idea of going in the military. They said it's a possible terrorist attack. I'm like, all right, here's your sign, dude. Like, you can either completely be a loser for the rest of your life, or you can go do something for yourself and for this country. And I was like, well, that's exactly what I want to do. Because my grandfather served in World War II, and there's some iconic people, you yeah. know. So I went to the recruiter station right then, and I skipped class, went there. Oh, no shit. And I was like, hey, whatever I got to do, I want to sign up. Yeah. Of course, my recruiter was like 400 pounds. I was like, yeah, you know, SEAL training's pretty hard. I'm like, dude, I'm not taking advice from you. <laughs> Get together. Uh, that's fucking great. So that was the, that was it. Was, uh, from that point on, was it a pretty straight line going in and, uh, you know, kind of all things pointed to that and, and laser focused? Everything. I didn't yeah. care about sports at that point. I didn't care about girls. I didn't care about anything. It was just regimented and getting my academics up to par to where they needed to be graduate. And right after school, I was at the YMCA training in the swimming pool. I was doing running. I was doing PT every single day and it truly paid off. Yeah. You know, it was just nothing could get in my way. And then right when I graduated, I mean, I took the summer just to spend time with the family. Immediately went to boot camp, got selected in boot camp to get a BUDS contract because you didn't have that SEAL thing back yeah. then. So I got selected. I went to A school, aviation ordinance. It's true. If you ain't ordinance, you ain't shit. <laughs> Still. <laughs> I chose that school yeah. because it was four weeks. Yeah. It was the shortest school I could go in the Navy to get the BUDS. Like fucking so, yeoman. Yes. Yeah. That's fucking great. Um, so when you, uh, you, you went to boot camp uh, and you went and you, you ended up showing up, what was, uh, from your experience, the contrast between what you were expecting uh, and, and actually how it was? was? Was there a big difference or was it kind of exactly what you thought it would be? I thought it was, I mean, I didn't really have any expectations of boot camp. I was disappointed actually with how little we actually did PT. Yeah. You know, you hear, you look at, there's a lot of stuff on the Marine Corps and how they just crush. And then you see Army, and it's, you know, it's more difficult than Navy and boot camp side. And, I mean, they drop you down, you had to do 10 push-ups, and I had just been training for the last couple of years pretty hard. So I felt like I was going backwards in the physical area. Yeah. Um, but I did, I enjoyed learning the history and the traditions of the Navy because it's important. What, what, what's the point of being a part of something if you don't even know where you come from? So I enjoyed it from that. And I just tried to make it fun for what it was while I was there. 
you know, getting to do the pen pal thing with your family and your friends where you're getting letters in the mail. That was cool. Yeah. You know, because we don't do that anymore. Now we got phones. I mean, we didn't have cell phones. Cell phones weren't even a thing when I went to boot camp. Yeah. Well, but, shit, tell me about it. I was uh, there in 96. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So now it's just, it's just this texting bull crap is, it's just pushed us away from reality. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, going through buds, I guess, you know, was there from everything that you read and researched and laser focused on when you actually showed up there, were you surprised by anything? Yeah. From right out of the gate, I was surprised by how damn cold the water was. Yeah. Did I you mean, show I come from Michigan time? and it's cold. I was not a swimmer growing up. Yeah. But we, you know, we got the buds and we're like, wow, we're here. What time of year was it? It was winter hell week class <laughs> and it was going out. It was Wednesday night when I showed up of winter hell week for yeah. like two classes before me. Yeah. And I saw those guys and they just looked so rough. And I was like, I'm out of my league right now. What do I, what, what do I, I was working at Walgreens in the photo department. Now I'm going to seal training. Are you kidding me? Why would I make it? So I started second guessing myself right out of the gate. And then I jumped in the water. I was like, oh shit, this is not for me. This is bad. It's like the wrestling, uh, wrestling excursion all over again. Picture this, right? So I'm standing in the line where we're getting ready to do surf torture and how wake. And before we even interlock arms, you can be, I got a guy on each side of me, height line. We're all about the same height, but these two guys, probably 180 to 225, their body size. Me, obviously huge, right? So yeah. don't laugh at me. Jack. Okay. So 150 at the time, 155. And so they do those, you know, hypothermia checks where they're basically looking at you with your laser or the lights and they come right and they pass me and they're like, whoa, hey buddy, how you doing? I'm like, I'm like you okay? I was like fucking cold yeah <laughs> and they violently started laughing at me and i was just like yeah it's so cold he's like well there's two ways we can go about this you can either go run in the water real quick again or you get the bot stick yeah all right i'm gonna go go at <laughs> <laughs> the uh did you ever get the uh the anal probe no there we go but i do have a funny story about this it's terrible oh god i shouldn't say i shouldn't yeah you this. should okay 100 so sure. you know in seal training you're not allowed to leave your swim body unless you're in at Hell Wake at the chow hall and you can go to the bathroom and you can depart from your swim buddy. So I had to go to the bathroom. So I run out there and of course the instructor's, hey Parrot, come over here. We're gonna mess with your officer. Okay, what are you gonna do? Like, you don't mind that, you just go with the flow. I'm like, okay, cool. So they took the butt probe, the anal probe out and they smeared peanut butter. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I already know where this is going. This is so bad. And then of course the officer comes running out such a good dude made it too. he's a great guy and they run up he runs up he's like sir come here runs up to him front center and they take the butt stick and they're like boom put it right in his face smear his cheek and it's like that was just <laughs> so a parrot's ass <laughs> and he just like starts violently vomiting like oh my gosh it's like oh, i'm an accessor to this whole uh, thing god damn that's great man that's uh, some of the uh the pranks and uh and bullshit that takes place. I mean, all through buds, but especially in Hell Week are, uh, I mean, that's like stand-up comedy funny. Like, oh, for the things that you can remember. Yeah. It's fucking unbelievable. Yeah. Like, I mean, some of the, uh, some of it's pretty torturous too. I mean, I remember um, I was, I was sitting at the table. I don't even remember if, I think it was, I want to say it was, it was one of our boat crew leaders. And I mean, you know, during Hell Week, it changes fucking, you know, so, so many times. I don't even remember which one it was, but um, but anyway, he had fallen asleep and they, uh, so they snuck up on him and opened a bottle of Tabasco and poured it in his fucking eyeballs. Oh my God. You know, and uh, <laughs> which I, I'm sure that they don't, they probably can't do that shit and don't do that shit anymore. I'm sure that there's, there's a lot of limitations, uh, but hopefully they still get some, uh, you know, some good old boy fucking tactics. Uh, you oh, know, I'm infused, certain they but, do. 
but yeah, just, you know, shit like that. Um, you know, it's just like anywhere else, like where, in, in what other facet of our society would that be both accepted and, and relatively normal where it's like, Oh, you fell asleep on the job. Let me pour fucking hot sauce in your eyeballs. Hey, might be uh, more productive yeah, in yeah, the no future. Shit, no shit. Um, <clears throat> all right. So you, you make it through, did you make it through in the first, uh, with your original class or did you get started with class two, four, five, uh, ended up getting enrolled and went to two, four, six, graduated two, four, six. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. So two, four, six, then you go through SQT and then you went to team seven first, right? Yep. What, uh, what was that like checking in there and, and kind of your first few months, uh, or, or first bit of time there? Like, so this was an interesting story. I've never actually shared this one public. It's kind of cool. So when you get, for those of you who are listening, so when you get through SQT, they basically will put your word out. So the guys are going West coast versus the guys are going East coast. So I say, I want to go West coast. I'm going to stay in San Diego. So you're going to go to one of the teams who are returning back from deployment. So it's just a cycle thing. But what platoon chooses you is a different story, right? So it's the platoon chiefs get together at the team and then they hand select you based off of your peer evals and seal training, you know, your academia, your physical fitness charts, all that stuff. And so my chief came to SQT to meet me. And so of course, you know, we're just doing something out by the boats and then all of a sudden they say, Parrot, hey, there's a chief here for you. And you immediately when you hear something like that, you're like, what do I do? Yeah. Go shit. And so I run up to this chief, he's my height, you know, full chief trident. And I was like, whoa, he's gonna try it. And he's a Navy SEAL, that's pretty cool. I was like, hey, chief, how you doing? He's like, your parrot? I am, he's like, cool. You're in my platoon, I just wanted to come meet you, see uh, how you're doing, everything good. And I was like, wow, this is super cool. Nobody else chief came to visit them. Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, like, what's the scenario? Now I'd heard at Team 7, it was a brand new team they had just formed up. And so the hard chargers were Alpha and Bravo platoon. So basically you would shift in as a new guy to go to like Echo Foxtrot platoon. And as you got more efficient as becoming an operator, you would work your way up the chain and trying to get to Alpha Bravo because they got the hottest spot on that first deployment. So they were the go-getters and they were older. So I wanted to you know shoot for that. So he said, you got one question, what you got? I was like, what platoon chief? And he says, Alpha. And I immediately thought to myself, like he is so yanking my chain. <laughs> what do I do with this information? Yeah. Do I show up to SEAL Team 7 Alpha Platoon or yeah. what do I do? So he takes off and then we go to Kodiak, Alaska for that cold weather survivor training. We get back and then I put on my uniform and I show up. SEAL Team 7 Alpha Platoon, knock on the door and I'm shaking. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to set the tone for the disaster that this is about to be. And when they open the door, I see all these guys just stop and they look at me like, you know, quiet and who's this punk? You know, when I'm 20 years old, like I can't even legally drink a beer yeah. and now I'm on a SEAL team. Yeah. And I'm standing before Alpha like, all right, this is my demise. And then they open the door and then I see Chief in there and instead of saying anything, he's like, oh, cool, Parrot's here, come on in. And I see my name up on the wall, I'm like, this is for real. Holy shit. And you know, it was a combination, they said it was like some pure evals and then just fitness. I was doing pretty well and so that's what they chose me for. And hope that they didn't regret it. Damn, that's wild, man. And then you show up and you're right. What do you do? You sit down. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, that's great. Did uh, did you get hazed early on? No. I mean, what uh, what was the what was the best hazing you got? Uh, well, the best hazing was just the platoon patch. Getting the yeah. platoon patch. That one was fun. The first one they did was just fun. It was like nothing bad. It wasn't hard or anything. Um, then after that, when we started messing up started screwing up as new guys. You start getting it pretty brutal. Uh, for me, the best one though. 
or I guess the the best worst. Like, what was the the most brutal fucking hazing you got? Brutal. It's a great question. Yeah. So there's quite a bit of hot sauce involved. Yeah. Hot and, sauce on the nuts and ass. Yeah. Did you ever get the mini blast machine? Did they use? Oh, that for sure. Yeah. yeah. Duct taped. You got the what was that? What was the hat called? The happy the happy hat. hat yeah. yeah. Happy hat, ice baths, yeah. then the hot sauce. I mean, now it's becoming a thing. Fit, you I know, know fitness we were doing ice going baths way before it was fucking cold. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe they're onto something. Yeah. That's funny shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that dude. happened in a hotel room. Yeah. When platoon knocks on the door, when you get a knock at your door in a, in a, in a hotel room. Yeah. And you're a new guy, you know it's not good. Yeah. My, uh, I'll share a quick story just because, uh, you know, I'm usually asking them about hazing just because that does get asked a fair bit. Um, so I, I was the intelligence rep for the platoon as a first platoon, which is rare. You know, it's usually a more seasoned guy, but I was an intelligence specialist. So, um, I just kind of found myself in that spot, but, um, myself and the, and the assistant OIC or assistant officer in charge for the, for those that don't know the, uh, the three letter acronyms, um, the, he and I went to this, um, Intel school that was like two weeks long. And so we ended up missing the the first like 36 hours when we went out to San Clemente Island for some maritime operations training. So it was early on in the platoon. It was basically the first platoon trip, which is where they were like, we're going to haze all the new guys. And there were eight of us, right? So it was, it was half half the platoon was new guys. Glenn Doherty was, was one of them and, and, you know, a few other guys that were pretty big physical dudes. But there were, you know, some pretty seasoned, you know, multi-platoon guys too. And, and our chief was a sadistic motherfucker. But... Anyway, so first platoon trip, you know, I'm not there, right? It's a, it's a Friday. I show up Saturday morning and Friday night. They'd gotten out there like Friday midday down, you know, unloaded all of their shit. And, uh, you know, we're getting things prepped for the next, you know, few days or whatever. And then they, they uh, basically grabbed one guy at a time because they didn't want to try to grab all, all eight or all seven at the time because uh, since I wasn't there one at a time and they like, you know, trick fucked guys into hey can you come out to the fucking you know whatever to give us a hand real quick and you know and then five minutes later be like hey fucking brandon you come out you know whatever and, and uh so you know they end up getting all all seven taped up and you know fucking waterboarding and, and happy hats and all the way taped up and you know i mean they're taping like one guy's nose to the other guy's asshole in a 69 spot and then like mini blasting one guy's face shoved in another guy's ass to see if it'll shock the other guy and like just beating the <laughs> shit out of guys and whatever and so here i come you know saturday morning i show up and all seven new guys are, are all fucking you know black eyes and fat lips and fucking hair missing and you know look like chickens that had been roosted by a coyote you know, the night before looking at me with ass eyes, like you motherfucker. And I'm just like, what the fuck happened? You're like <laughs> we all got our, our initiation hazing and you weren't here. Fuck face. And I was like, Oh God damn. And so well, for that, yeah, so for that entire trip, you know, that they were like all the old guys are like, motherfucker, you wait, you're going to, you're going to get it twice as bad. Cause you, you know, you weren't here or whatever. And that was the deal was that they didn't haze me. It was a three week trip and they didn't haze me the entire time. They just kept fucking with me making right. me think i was gonna get hazed i was sleeping in like the 16 pack vans out in the parking lot i slept on the roof a couple of nights like in, in a classroom under a desk like and uh, and they never did it and that was fucking 10 times worse like they ended up doing it the day we got back you know but uh yeah it was fucking terrible that's but. a great story san clemente is a total 
or at Gosh, least it was brutal. a total brutal uh, it was a brutal breeding ground for that yeah. i mean we did the same thing we show yeah. up and ours was course at the end of the trip yeah so we worked throughout the trip and then of course the last night before about to leave it was like buds all over again yeah. before back and forth wet and sandy and all the other fun stuff that you just mentioned but at least you get to have a beer every iteration <laughs> yeah. so now on top of all the stuff you're doing yeah. you're vomiting yeah you know yeah well, that, you know, unlike buds, you can, you can fight back too, you know, which, uh, like they're actually putting their hands on you, not just making you do stuff, you know? So it was a little, a little different that way, but, um, but yeah, it's some, some epic fucking hazings have gone on out there. No doubt. That's always the best part too, is when you get to a bar, let's say you're in a training trip and you go to a bar afterwards, you're like hanging out with everybody and you're yeah. talking to somebody and they're like, what happened to you? <laughs> no. It wouldn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you, yeah, you wouldn't understand it. Yeah. Um, that or they think you're into some like weird swinger fucking bondage <laughs> thing or whatever. All 16 of you guys are into that shit? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We're a club of bowling. We're a bowling team. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So you go, to, you go to Team 7, you're in Alpha Platoon, uh, you get hazed, et cetera. The, the workup happens. Uh, talk to me about your first, uh, first deployment there. Like anybody else who serves, I don't think there's one guy who's not nervous to go on deployment because you've never seen it. You don't know anything about it. You just hear the stories. But to actually get boots on ground in a third world country, I mean, and all the build up to it, I think that's the initial, you know, adrenal fatigue, right? Is that you're so much you're putting in. Training's hard, right? When you go through <coughs> workup, training's brutal. It's super hard. It's around the clock. It's in multiple different places in the country. You can go from 120, 30 degrees to cold, freezing. And you're still doing the same output, the work, and you're still, and you're doing live fire stuff. So it's all dangerous and you're a new guy. So you gotta continually not only prove yourself, but just stay, you know, at par, you know, you're drinking out through a fire hose, they say. So we're getting ready and we're tasked to go into Habania, Iraq, 2005. And our deal is gonna be operating between Habania, TQ and Ramadi. And so I think it, Ramadi was controlled like 20, 30% controlled by native forces. So we were going in there almost every night to go do, you know, catch a bad guy or shoot a bad guy or whatever. And, you know, so I land and I don't, when we get to TQ, we're just sitting in there and I'm like, we're staying in these shithole buildings and sandbags lining every window. And you're just like, what is this is our, I mean, I'm thinking we're the SEAL teams. We're supposed yeah. to have like these futuristic pods that just pop up <laughs> and then, you know, they can hide from IEDs and we're staying in sand huts. It's crazy. And Chris Kyle was there. And this was before Chris had a name. Yeah. But he was a sniper who had already taken some lives. And so I was like, okay, I want to talk to him. I was like, what's it like overseas? What's it like out there out, outside the wire? And he's like, dude, it's good. That's all he said to me is, dude, it's good. <laughs> I was like, okay. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to be over here cleaning my <laughs> rifle right now. Cool. So, and then we get our tasking for our first mission. And being a new guy, you don't do shit. You know, you're a little, literally on squirter control. Or you're just waiting for somebody to shoot out the back of the target or you're in the back of the train. So by the time that you get to make entry into the house, house is cleared already. But just seeing the movement, how the guys work, even though I'd seen them in training, what they were doing, to see them do it, you know you level up. Yeah. When you're getting ready to go attack a real target, you see guys are all on point. They're all locked in. They're ready to go. There's no fucking around. And then you go, and it's fast. And I was like, whoa. And that's when we were doing like those you know, quick attacks. We were doing like kills, and it was fun. So watching that stuff was mind-blowing to me. And then... They decided that they wanted me to be the navigator. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. What a responsibility. I'm the worst fucking navigator in the world. I come from Detroit, dude. Like, yeah. I had street signs. I don't have, yeah. like, hills. Yeah. Perfect. So 
<laughs> it was just a disaster. But I mean, I learned how to be a primary point man in Iraq doing it on the job. And so I've been navigating the guys to and from Target, which was really cool. And then I finally got to make my first entry, which was everything. They're like, all right, you get up there today, you're going to make an entry. So you're first man in. I was like, wow. And your heart's pounding. And you don't know what's behind the door. You don't know if it's rigged. I mean, obviously the AOD guys are checking it, but you don't know what you're about to expect. So your heart's pounding and you just want to do a good job for your guys and you want to make sure you cover down. And so you just, you just go through it fast and you go through the motions and you rely on your training. And before you know it, the house is cleared and you're like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. So we did a lot of that. I mean, back in 05, we were allowed to do it. It was a lot of cowboys and Indians, they called it, you know, no RO. I mean, the ROEs were simple. Like if you're getting shot at, fucking smoke them. Um, and then they started tightening that up. We were like, well, no, you got to be reasonably certain that your life's in inherent danger. I'm going to have to say that before I shoot. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was 2000, it was three months into deployment. You know, my life changed. We were, uh, we were tasked with going to do this like crazy real deal. Like what I would consider Navy SEAL op, right? Taking the full package out to an Island. We're doing maritime, taking our rubber boats, cruising across the, the pond. We're uh, cacheting the boats. We're doing a full scan of the deal, setting up hide sites, waiting 24 hours and doing a full scan of the island for ammunition and demo, which we never found. Um, so we did this full operation. It was crazy. And my chief and the guys that I was in the hide site with, they're like, of course, me being a new guy, it doesn't matter that you're in Iraq. They're still going to fuck with you on a new guy. Yeah. So they're like, hey, dude, there's reporting that there's some pretty bad cats that live in this island, like some really, <laughs> really gnarly cats, just standpoint. So I'm like, Fucking cat's not going to get us. <laughs> a cat on the island. I stayed there hypervigilant all night long and see shit. It was ridiculous. So next day, uh, we get back to our boats. We cruise on out at night, put them back in the, the ark, we called it. And then we convoyed back to base, about three clicks south of Habania. I remember that they had called the first driver in the Hummer called out that there was a dude standing on the side of the road past curfew. And so they went through the standard ROEs where they crashed. They threw a crash out, first turret gunner through the crash to stun him, scare him, get him away, didn't move. Turret two, lazed him, sent some pop shots around the area to see if he would move, didn't do anything. So that basically means that the next car in the convoy would be me. So this is my time where I'm turning my turret and my, um, 50 caliber towards that dude so I can smoke him. And then right before I even got the chance to consider pushing the trigger, he clacked off or we hit a pressure plate. Not exactly sure. I always say it's a pressure plate because that's what I was told. Who knows? We hit a 155 pressure plate at IED, so we say. And it was the scariest fucking thing I've ever been through in my life. And I've ridden a PBR bowl before, and it made that bowl feel like I was sitting in this chair. It was so violent. It was so fast. It was so powerful. It shot me straight out of the turret into the sky. That's why I got my nickname Birdman is because I went flying because <laughs> you don't get a nickname for being cool unless you're truly cool. Well, the last I, name like Parrot, though, I mean, it's not, it's not a huge stretch. Well, I used to be Soup, and the other guy was Sandwich, <laughs> so I upgraded to Birdman. He stayed Sandwich. That's good for me. Oh, that's fucking great. But... The fireball came blasting through the cockpit, sending shrapnel through all of us, burning everybody inside. We got first, second, third degree burns. Um, just complete, utter chaos and mess. Blew the front out of our Hummer off. The Hummer went up, came back down, just smashed right into the dirt because we were probably moving 50, 55 miles an hour. So 
you think about taking that kind of an impact at that speed and then coming back down, <clears throat> now the dirt rolls all over everything, covers you, and you just complete this array. I can't find my gun. I'm just a mess. And I'm, after I went flying, I land on the ground. And I'm just trying to make sense of what just happened. So Never you were went conscious out. for the whole thing. Conscious for the whole thing. I remember everything minus the split second right after I remember the this fireball coming right through the cabin. I just that was it. It was like dark for a second and then back and like, what are we doing? From that point, I remember seeing the Hummer was just had flown off to the side of the, the road and it was just stuck there and my driver's laying outside of his door, doors blown off. And that was the new up armored Hummer. So it blew through like an inch and a half thick steel, blew him through that, blew my VC, my vehicle commander, my chief through his side. Everybody got rocked. And he was bleeding out his femoral artery. I could see his tibula sticking out. It was not good. And you think about, I was 20, 21 years old, something like that. That's something that 21 year olds don't see. You know the deal. So it changes you. And it doesn't change me from a standpoint as now I'm fucked up in the head because I got blown up. But no, it gave me a reality check in life and how life can be pretty brutal. And so it was like, now it's time to grow up and be a man. I'm not saying that I considered myself a hardcore dude or a man because I never have. But that point was a reality check on like, you got to step your game up. And I almost lost four teammates. I almost died myself. If that bomb had gone off the right way because it went low order, had it done right, we would all been missed. Yeah. So why are we here? And then when we got, so I patched my driver up, one of my other teammates patched uh, our VC up, and then you know, we were working together, convoy came together, we shielded everybody, we got them in the back of the Hummer, and then we got in the back of the exposed Hummer, and we were driving only three clicks at the fastest we could go. But I'm telling you what, sitting in the back of that Hummer, just putting the demo blankets over you, scary as shit. Cause you're like, if we get rocked right now, we're dead. Yeah. This is so scary. And we finally got to the base and then they started putting us through the medical treatment and that. And we all had to go back home. So it cut my deployment short. So, but well, that, go ahead. Um, when the initial blast went off, was there a follow on ambush or follow on contact at all? Or was it just that? We, we you know, you got to train for it and we expected it. <laughs> we did not get ambushed, which was great. It was just kind of a standalone dude. They would plant these IEDs at night because that's when they were less frequently traveled by civilians and just traveled by the military especially the spec ops guys. So they knew what they were doing. And I'm glad that at least we took it instead of uh, some civilians who didn't deserve that kind of stuff. But that also gave me that fire when I went back home. Cause you know the deal when you're sent back home <clears throat> for those types of reasons, all you want to do is get back to the platoon. So I'm like, what do I have to do? Like, I'm not super injured. Let me, let me go back. And they're like, there's no need. And I was like, come on. Well, okay, here's the deal. They need a, they need a UAV or yeah, like one of those, UAV qual. <laughs> I'll do it overseas. So if you can get that qual, we'll send you back to the platoon. I'm like, Don, where are we going? So I went to Arizona, went through like a two week course in flying ravens. And then I shot back overseas. I was like, so you're telling me that being able to fly this model plane supersedes my health and readiness. And now I'm capable again. Okay, perfect. So yeah. I did that, got back overseas and that's when we were doing the rip. So our platoon had ripped from Iraq to the Philippines, Philippines ripped to Iraq. And so I went to the Philippines and they're like, all right, so you got this qual, let's see what you can do. So I took the Raven, I threw it up in the air, started flying it, smashed it into a tree, and that was the last time I flew the Raven. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so that two-week qual was maybe not quite long enough. It was just enough to get me back. <laughs> That's a trip. Well, uh, in terms of, of your injuries, what, uh, what were the extent of them? Shrapnel through my chest, um, first and second degree burns to my hands, on my face, welders burns in my eyes. So 
I wear always like pit viper type kind of big glasses now, which they look like I'm snowboarding in the summer, yeah. but because super sensitive to the sunlight, um, welders burns create a problem where you can't see in super bright light. Otherwise you start seeing a lot of stars really quick and it's just weird vision. Um, my skin healed. I still have some scars from it. Um, but I'm very blessed that I was <laughs> very fortunate. Um, up until 2012, 13, they were pulling shrapnel out of my body and, that point i was just like okay i'm giving up like i'm fine Whatever. so you still have some in there i guess i don't know yeah. i haven't checked in a long time yeah if i start finding out that i have a problem i'll go get it cut out but yeah did you save any of it no no um did, so from from that well actually let me take one step back before you did that and that the, the three months leading up to that were there any operations that stood out um as being you know kind of uh stand out where either it went horribly wrong or it went super well or, or that just, uh, you know, were, were fantastic operations that, uh, that you recall. So you remember those when you get those tasks for the big ones, cause they, they, the way that their word, they put the word out is different, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not saying that I was like task going bin Laden raid or anything like that. Bullshit. I wasn't by the way, <laughs> but <laughs> there was, um, there was just a different demeanor when they put out this word about us going after Al Zarqawi. So I went on a Zarqawi raid. And this was like the top VIP under bin Laden at the time. And our platoon, our task unit, and they basically pulled in us, Team 10. I mean, they pulled everybody for this asset. Delta Force was there. The Rangers were there for external blocking. I mean, it was a full, and we got this information the day, probably four hours before we hit the target. It was a hospital. I'm talking like five buildings, seven stories, and we got clear this whole thing because Zarqawi's in the building. And the word that was being put out was that he's on the fourth floor and he's in building two. Like, well, how the fuck do you know that? Okay, well, again, I'm a new guy, so I'm just taking orders, right? I'm going to be where I need to be. And we're mixing and matching, so it's like a couple CAD guys and a couple SEALs, and we're all just making entries and doing different stuff. And that's why you, bilateral training is so important because you can just measure it up real quick, build your force bigger, and then go and hit these targets that are so massive. So we schooled up really quick. We met at an offsite, and then we ended up going to this hospital. And they said, yep, yeah, you know, he's on the fourth floor, building two. And no shit, as we get there and we start getting ready, fourth floor, lights go out. The whole hospital. Like, ain't that something? <laughs> and then it starts raining. But it was a, a sandstorm, so it's raining mud on us. Jesus. And I'm like, this is like the most demonic time <laughs> <laughs> I don't like this. And then I see one of the CAG guys comes up and I had never even known about Delta Force, but the CAG guy comes up, he's got his sleeves cut off. He's got the biggest biceps I've ever seen. He's got a full mohawk and he's like, yeah, bro, we're going to do this. And I'm like, <laughs> whoa, there's like a whole nother level of this stuff. So we ended up going through the target. It was like a five, six hour push to clear everything. Didn't find him. It was just a disaster. But that weight, like that build up to it was so impressive and so exciting that we'll never forget it. The, uh, was there anything of, of note that took place or was it just a, a fucking dry hole? Dry hole. Oh shit. It was an operating hotel. I mean, uh, hospital. So there yeah. are people in beds there, but <clears throat> whether we got bad intel or we missed them or whatever it was, I mean, that's the case. Like we had, I think we got word on a couple of occasions that bin Laden was in a certain area and yeah. who knows? I mean, we hit the target. We didn't find anybody. Yeah. You know how it goes those like 50% of the time you go ahead a target, there's either nobody home or the wrong people there. Yeah. Well, and that or it's like, it's a tribal feud that they just want to fuck with somebody they don't like, or, you know, like that's always the 
trouble and tricky part i think with uh with human intel is uh is that you know is that it's there's you know ulterior motives and it's or it's incorrect or it's a fucking trap or you know i mean there, there's a lot of uh angles to it but um all right so you, you get through that deployment you get blown up uh, you go home early you come back end up at the philippines crash the uh <laughs> the fucking the remote control plane for lack of better terms and uh <clears throat> and then what got a lot of tattoos in the philippines is that right that's what you do there what uh which ones i did the ocean scene here oh, sure. so my plan was ocean here land into air so it's sea air and land oh, for okay. seal that's cool and so yeah i've got the ocean scene and then i got a back piece and i got a side piece and basically just drink beer and yeah eat awesome food and you just yeah. eat tons of mango and you get tattooed yeah and they're so crazy though so it's supposedly even though there's al-qaeda all over the philippines and there's like over seven thousand islands or something like that we're there to do a mission and it could get real and we got i mean our platoon got no gunfight out there were you down in the south in uh, zamboanga so now yeah. yeah yeah so we're in zamboanga tawi tawi batu batu something like all the way up and yeah, our officer got in a gunfight and one of the Filipino SEALs got shot in the head. And it was uh, when our medic saved his life. He got shot in the head and our medic saved his life in a bonka boat. Wow. Got him back. And uh, yeah, it's just amazing. Those guys are, uh, are hardcore. I mean, we spent um, almost two months there doing uh, some cross training with the Filipino SEALs that were going down uh, you know, to Mindanao to fight. and. So we, we didn't actually uh, get to do it at that at that time. Uh, they basically said the the president at the time didn't want American forces engaging any uh, any Filipino forces of any kind. Uh, but anyway, you know, we did uh, the jungle survival training, and uh, you know, for us it was like, man, this is fucking rough. And like for those dudes, it's like, no, this is just how we live. Like they're diving into swamps, grabbing frogs and eels and shit, and making bamboo shoot soup and fucking plucking bamboo bats out of out of bamboo chambers and fucking skewering them and eating them. And, and it was just like, yeah, sometimes you know we don't get paid for two three months at a time, and and even when they do, it's like seventy bucks a month or some shit like that. You know, and their morale's so high. Oh yeah, they're. I mean, like they're fins. They made fins out of uh, out of riggers tape that like they rolled it. Right. So you take, you know, like roll it over on itself and make like rope out of it. Um, and they, they would lash um, those plastic fucking green, like the hard plastic green silhouettes that we would use for targets. Like they would use the head and, and cut, you know, and, and have several layers of that with riggers tape, you know, lashed for laces to, to tie it around their feet. And then, and, and like they used fins like that. Like that. it was just like they're making their own shit out of our trash. You know, and uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, like these dudes were fucking super fired up. You know, they're using like old shitty Nokia cell phones for their comms. <laughs> you know, it's just seriously like. Seriously, the nicest dudes in the world. So yeah. they were always trying to do things for us, right? So they gave us this like Commodore Dragon, like, this fucking massive lizard. Yeah. It was mean. <laughs> like, what the fuck are we supposed to do, to do with this thing? <laughs> don't want, thank you, but we don't want it. So like, should we eat it? And they're like, yeah. what do we do? We don't yeah. want that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they show up and. They gave us a monkey, like this little mini monkey. I'm like, well, that's cool. Yeah. So we keep the monkey at the house with us. We got our own little house. We keep the monkey there. This monkey learns how to take the matches and start fucking lighting them and pitching them. It's a wooden house. Starts the house on fire. Just a total train wreck. We're like, that monkey's gone. So we threw him out in the trees. He's good to go. He partied. He comes and went back. away. Then they gave us a cow. God a cow. Man. And the thing started dropping piles of shit everywhere around the house. You couldn't even get outside the house. I'm like, 
we gotta stop with the animals guys uh. but my favorite thing about all that was like the brotherhood that they shared they would always come together and their karaoke <laughs> they would bring their karaoke and they forced you to drink and get up on that karaoke machine and sing and you know, they sounded exactly like the people they were singing, whereas yeah. I don't. That's fucking great. I was not comfortable. Yeah, that country's awesome. We, uh, they always wanted us to play soccer. And, you know, so these dudes are like 5'5", five, five, 130 pounds and lightning fast, you know, and just and whipping our ass at soccer. So we're like, all right, well, we'll, we'll put a little American football style into it. And so we just start fucking steamrolling them. You know, it, it turns into like this fucking barroom brawl soccer rugby match hybrid that uh, just i mean it was a fucking blast but uh yeah we had a lot of good times there i love that place um uh, so once you kind of wrapped it up there i guess what uh did you did you go back home and go back into a workup or what was your uh, your career path like after that trip yeah that was the career path was just honestly deployment after deployment after deployment i kept Every time we get back from a deployment, I went right to the master chief's office and I was like, hey, I want another pump. Yeah. Because that's the only place you belong in the teams is in a team. Yeah. Like being an instructor, you got to do it. You got to get back and all that stuff. And it actually makes you better of an operator to instruct. But it's not fun. It's like you want to be part of the action. I hate, excuse me, I hate getting a call saying, oh, these dudes did this overseas and you're stuck back at base. I think being an instructor is, is really cool for one cycle. Yeah. You know, like seeing behind the curtain and being part of that institution is special. It's it's an honor. It's uh, it's really neat, um, and it's it's something that I think, as, as a student going through, that you always wonder. You know, like what the fuck are these guys really doing, or what you know, what's it like? What are they thinking? Like, is there way more to it than than they let on that we know? You know, and so it's like you get all of those questions kind of answered uh, for yourself. You know, so getting to see that and getting to work a hell week is awesome and then and then after that then you're like all right this fucking sucks you know like now it's just it's mundane it's monotonous it's hard like i mean working hell weeks are more exhausting or or as exhausting as going through it i mean i couldn't believe like the first one i worked in it's only an eight hour shift but it's like your intensity is at a fucking 12 for eight hours like just trying to just steamroll these guys and you know i know for me it was like i got done i was like dude i feel like i went through hell week like i was wrecked yeah, for like a cold? fucking three days you're even wet yeah, yeah totally. it was it was fucking brutal but, but yeah I, I know what you mean i mean that you know being at, in a platoon at a team is the you know is really the pinnacle of, of being in the seal teams and that's why everybody you know signed up to to do it in the first place but uh so when, when uh, where did your second uh, platoon go back to iraq or yeah right back to ramadi so this time we were staged in Ramadi, so we split it between the two platoons, and we were in the Moab district, so we were staying at Camp Corregidor, and then we had Camp Mark Lee, and so we were, which was shark base originally. So we were bouncing back and forth between that deal and just operating in the Moab and just kind of cleaning up the mess. So we kind of kicked it off in 2005, and then in 2006, you know, SEAL Team 3 went in there and started doing some really good work and really cleared it out, and then we were kind of putting the finishing touches on it in 2007. So we went back to Ramadi. It's great deployment, really good motivated platoon. I mean, I don't have anything to complain about in my platoons. They were just they were great guys. We worked together. Most of us worked together for a couple pumps. Yeah. So we knew each other. We knew each other how we moved. We Because we knew each other, the expectation was you're going to do your job to the best of your ability. So we deployed there again. It started to get harder, though. I initially started to see that there was too many lines of communication now where it was you had to get so many approvals on the American side and so many approvals on the Iraqi side and the Iraqi side didn't move at all. Like the, the general could be sitting outside smoking a cigarette for five hours and you need to go hit the target now. And so it was just like lost. And that really became a problem. 
then we started getting a lot of bad intel and we were doing a lot of dry holes. So we tried. I mean, we wanted every bit of that action and we get it where we could. Uh, but sometimes we were just stuck. And that's kind of what led to me kind of figuring out how I was going to exit because my last deployment in 2007, I'm sorry, 2009, back to Iraq, and this time was in Basra, right in the Iranian border. And we got in there and we started operating pretty hard and heavy for a couple months, and then they just shut us down completely. I could not believe it. Just overnight, the politicians got involved and said, you're fucking done. Wow. Why? What are we doing wrong? We're, <clears throat> there's threats. We're taking out threats. This is the stuff that's being fed to us. Why are you stopping us? And then when we get something that was actionable and we put it and get approval from the American side, the Iraqi side would sit on their ass. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than sitting on your ass for six months. Yeah. It's just it's not good. Yeah. Like, why are we here? Yeah. Uh, I would like to take a real quick break and talk to you about uh, MyBookie. I want you to uh, go to MyBookie.com and use my promo code MikeDrop, uh, which you'll instantly get a deposit bonus up to $1,000. Remember to use my code MikeDrop and bet with me only at MyBookie. Primarily, the only way watching these fights could get any better is to get paid doing it, and MyBookie makes that a possibility. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. As you guys know, as I have gotten older, I've paid a little closer attention to my health and specifically the nutrition aspect. you got to have good fuel if you're going to feed the machine or fuel the combat chassis, as they say. And this next partner is a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens um, because I, I noticed a both brain fog and joint pain issue that uh, has just kind of crept up as I've gotten older. And uh, also, like from a bloating and gut health standpoint, uh, just as I get older, I kind of started to notice that. And I started taking Athletic Greens and I like to, to try everything, um, you know, for a few weeks before I really kind of give it the the thumbs up or thumbs down. And this stuff I, I noticed within about 10 days, um, just kind of a, a bettering of symptoms in all those areas, less bloating, um, more kind of brain cognition and less joint pain. Um, and this stuff is, is super high concentrated. It's uh, just one scoop a day that you can put into really anything that you want to drink or normally drink. It's got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, uh, and adaptogens. And um, it's easy uh, light from a lifestyle-friendly standpoint. It, it, it's really easy to take. It ta uh, contains less than one gram of sugar. So whether it's insulin or <clears throat> if you're diabetic or you just don't want the carbohydrates, et cetera, uh, it's good to go there and has uh, just really high-quality, nutrient-dense ingredients that your body needs uh, while it still still actually tastes pretty good. Uh, I do sleep better and recover uh, noticeably faster. Like, I, I, don't, I don't feel as sore on it. <clears throat> um, the mental clarity is, is definitely noticeable. Uh, and it's not very expensive, um, which is, you know, not that I'm not willing to uh, you know, pay for, for something that's, that's good, but it's, it's less than 3 bucks a day. And uh, the, the founder actually started it when uh, kind of a similar story, experienced a lot of gut health issues and, uh, you know, wanted to, to address that. And so that's kind of where it stems from and, and uh, springboards off of. But um, it, it really is an all-in-one nutritional uh, experience and, and kind of a, a health insurance for protecting, um, you know, your, your joints and your body and things of that nature. So... I strongly encourage it. I've had good success with it. 
I think you guys uh, would dig it too. It, uh, they're actually uh, <clears throat> going to give you a free one-year supply of uh, vitamin D and five free travel pa- packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash mic drop, all one word. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash mic drop. And uh, go ahead, check those guys out, and uh, give it a shot. I think you'll dig it. We love Ghostbed. They have super comfortable mattresses that last forever, and they're made in the USA. Every mattress has a 20-year warranty. Some even have 25, and you can try it out for 101 nights. If you don't like it, you can send it back. No hard feelings. One of our favorite parts about Ghostbed is that each mattress has cooling technology in it, so if you get hot at night like, say, I do here in Texas, these things are a lifesaver. Ghostbed also offers bundles so you can get everything you need. You don't even have to really think about it. Just choose from their four mattresses and then pick your bundle. So whether you just need a mattress and frame or you want it all, like their cooling pillows and sheets, you can get the best bang for your buck. Right now, Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and adjustable base. Or 30% off everything if you use the code MICDROP at ghostbed.com forward slash MICDROP. You can buy a mattress for like 35 bucks a month. They have zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months. Go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash mic drop. Do you have an RV or a camper? You should check out Ghostbed's RV mattress. You can get the all foam or hybrid version, and it's perfectly sized to fit your RV, camper, or trailer. It's way better than what you're sleeping on now with exclusive cooling technology to keep you nice and cool throughout the night. Right now, you can get 30% off the RV mattress by using code MICDROP. All right, I want to talk about a product that is uh, near and dear to my heart. It's Bub's Naturals. Glenn Doherty was uh, one of my closest friends. was tragically killed in Benghazi um, back during that uh, incursion. Uh, two good friends of his, uh, Sean and, and TJ, came together and wanted to design a, a brand around Glenn that both supports the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which it does very well, as well as put out a really good product for collagen protein and MCT oil powder. Uh, so they, they came up with Bubs Naturals. It's a brand that I've taken for years. I stand behind a thousand percent, and it's a product that I'm very, very proud and honored to have as a sponsor of this podcast because of where it comes from, who it benefits, and ultimately uh, has the name of, of, you know, one of the best men I've ever had the pleasure of, of knowing and operating with. Um, the college protein, I, I will say, is the best collagen on the planet. It's better than everything else. Uh, it's unflavored. Uh, it's very soluble, and, and it is better than any other product. Uh, per serving, it's 20 grams of protein, seven essential amino acids, and it's one single ingredient, which is collagen. Uh, it is essential for joint health, muscle recovery, gut health, and more. It is 100% NSF, four sport certified. It's Whole30 approved, sustainably sourced. Collagen protein really is the key to performance and keeping your joints healthy. Uh, you can train better, longer, and smarter with it. It is the purest form of collagen. Uh, again, it's sustainably sourced from grass-fed and pasture-raised cows in southern Brazil. It's keto and paleo diet approved, heat tolerant, and you can put it in anything. Uh, the MCT oil powder, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing for coffee creamer. 
Uh, it's vegan and keto friendly. Uh, it's great for mental focus and energy and just good healthy fat. Uh, and Bubs is the only MCT in the world that is Whole30 approved. If you go to bubsnaturals.com and use the promo code MICDROP, all one word, all caps, for 20% off, that's 20%. That's one-fifth for you math majors. Again, I, I cannot stress enough um, how honored I am to have Bubs Naturals as a sponsor of the Mic Drop podcast. Uh, Glenn was was an amazing human being, and the two gentlemen, Sean and TJ, that uh, you know have, have taken up his um, you know name in, in honor of, of what he did and brought to this planet. Uh, in, in bringing that same level of, of uh, you know, just an amazing human being to, to their product is something that uh, I'll be forever grateful for. So go to uh, bubsnaturals.com, use the promo code MICDROP for 20% off. All right, let's get back into it. Uh, going back to that 2007 deployment where uh, things kind of started to slow down. Um, I am curious, were there certain operations, you know, you talked about putting the finishing touches on some of um, the task unit bruiser guys that were there in 06. Um, what was what was kind of the pinnacle or or what were some standout things that you guys did there that, uh, that you recall that you can share? We shut down the entire base uh, for what they called Camp Corregidor. I mean, so we had an operating base there and then we had Shark and we ended up closing out. It was just, you know, we were trying to go after targets and it just wasn't happening anymore. They'd moved, they'd shifted out. And so there was different targets of opportunity. We were flying north, south, east, west, driving to different locations to operate because everything had been pushed. They did such a good job in 06, Bruiser guys, that it really was like, hey, thanks assholes for leaving <laughs> us nothing. Was there any uh, legit fucking gunfight operations that you... Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, the Marine Corps, <laughs> they knew how to get into a gunfight every yeah. day. So it's always like, hey, can you come as... I was a sniper. So could you come in and you stand, sit up on the buildings and sort of like, oh, this is the... I'm so glad I signed up for this. Just to sit on the top of a roof at 150 degrees, just yeah. burning for five, six, eight hours while they're doing a clearance was just awesome. Yeah. So you get really bored and then you start looking at different types of targets like donkeys and stuff like that. <laughs> but... You know, there were there were a few gunfights. Nothing really to write home about. And that's the I mean, but that I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah. That the Bruiser guys did such a good job that it just really left nothing for us. We close loop on that, move somewhere else. So we did do some stuff up north, um, Tarthar and things like that. So all in it was just kind of a it was a fun deployment. Yeah. It wasn't really really a hard hard deployment. Were there any good uh, good sniper action uh, ops that you went on where you uh, actually got employed? Yeah, there was a couple in 2007. Um, like I said, it was mostly the Marine Corps doing pushes, Army, or they were doing like med caps where they're trying to help people, and then bad guys would get word and they start coming into town. You could see everything clear out of the road, and you're like, okay, this is my this is my viewpoint, my vantage point. This is where we're going to engage, and you know, guys would come through, and then you would you know just fire, yeah, you just take shots and. You know, whether it was in vehicle or motorcycle or just on foot, you just really watch what they're doing because they didn't see you. And you just make sure to eliminate those threats so that, because that's an ambush for those Marines on the ground. So that's really our, our deal is just to make sure you guys focus on what you're doing, go clear these houses. and But then also watching them too, because when there's nothing going on and you switch out of being a sniper for a second, you know, kind of take your eyes off the lens for a second to re-clear and just make yourself better. I'd get back on the lens and look at the Marines and how they operated and watching them clear houses and, Saw a couple guys like falling on their ass walking into the target. I'm like, oh gosh, this is gonna not be good. <laughs> so I was like, maybe we need to have a talk with these guys about how to 
how to do things a little bit more efficient. Yeah. But that was the beauty though, too, is being able to work with these cats you know, and seeing, I've never met a unit other than the Marine Corps as proud as the Marine Corps. Yeah. Those dudes are ready to go at all times. They want to go. They're hungry. They're easy to work with. I mean, yeah, really. I, lo- I love those guys. I mean, we, we worked with them a ton and uh, they, they were fucking great all the time, you know. Yeah, you could always count on them to fucking, you know, be be whatever you needed them to be at, at, a, at a moment's notice, which was great. Um, is there a, a sniper engagement uh, for you where you could tangibly say, like, if I hadn't done this, that X would have happened? No, I don't think so. I think depending on how it happened, if we were in a contact or if a, snipe, if, if a round was fired, then it was immediately, you know, we were shooting area weapons, so... 60s, Mark 48s, 46s. So to say that I'm the one who changed something, probably not. Um, I mean, to my friends, of course, I'm going to say that. Like, <laughs> you, you don't even know. Like, you're lucky for your life right now. Yeah. But now, um, not on that front. In 2009, there was one operation for sure. Um, but it wasn't a sniper deal. It was just a simple scenario where we were going to get a bad guy. And this dude's, I mean, this dude was a warrior, man. He came out of his cave, like at his house. It's a corner house, and he walks outside the gate, and he's got a bottle of alcohol in one hand and a, and a pistol in the other, and he just starts shooting at us. And I'm just right there positioned right in front of him, like, thanks. He's shooting right at us, and just take him out. And so he's there. And then, of course, the new guy's coming. I was like, first time I've seen a dead guy. I'm like, cool, case of beer. So you know how that goes. <laughs> and so that was a good one because you know how when you're working with Jundies, the Iraqi forces, or any type of other military or law enforcement within a third world country, these guys, when they get startled, they fire in any direction their gun's pointing. So they, they are always for us, instead of being like, engage the target, we're first drop to your chest, yeah. make sure that all those Iraqi soldiers are doing their shooting wherever they're shooting, because they're not listening. And then once that fire subsides, then we can actually engage our targets from the ground prone, which worked out great, because that's what happened. Those. The second that guy started shooting, those Iraqis started shooting every single direction. There was yeah. no command and control. And so by getting prone, it gave us the opportunity to actually engage the target and kill the target and then or eliminate the threat and then also save our lives. Yeah. Well, um, was he the target you were going after? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what, what was the story on him? Was he a, a bomb maker, a financier? Or what, what was the... He killed... Yeah, so I can't... I can. So the... So nights before this, this dude had set the tone. I don't know how exactly it was, but he sent rockets into the base to the, uh, the guard shack and he killed a couple of the Marines army guys that were there. And you could just see the shift in morale, the base, because there wasn't a whole lot of oper- kinetic operations going on. So, now we had just lost a couple. Others were in the hospital fighting for their life. Some lost their life within a two-day two window. And so the morale was super low. We got the intel, and we went after this cat, and we fucking got him. And that was such a reward. You know, most people wouldn't understand it. Like, we're killing. This is wrong. I was like, well, that's not what we do. We're not there to make peace. We're there to eliminate the threat. And the threat comes to this country, this is going to be a bad day. So got to get rid of evil. We eliminated that threat, and we felt like we really got that closure. And that next day, we were asked to be in our uniforms, like our dress camis, whatever. So we go to the wake over at the, uh, at the base. Whole base is in there to mourn these soldiers that we lost. 
And the general goes, hey, I just want to let you know that redemption has happened because right there in the back corner is the team, the SEAL team that went out last night and they killed the guy who did this. Yeah, and awesome. then everybody started cheering and I felt, that was the only time in my career that I felt like what I did was absolutely worth it. Dude, that's like, badass. It's all good. Was that, uh, was that down south in the Basra area? Yep. Yeah. Man, that's fucking, that's powerful. Um, were you, did, did you find that uh, whether it was that guy or, or any of the operations while you were still doing them and allowed to do them, going head to head with any Iranian, like actual Iranian state sponsored forces, or was it all like proxy shit? Oh, for sure there was, because that's the, I mean, they were, so nobody was operating when we got there. So those crew, those cats were cruising through Iran and just cruising across the water and then coming right in Iraq and just passing right through. Nobody was doing anything. The Brits were there, but they weren't doing anything. And so you could see this stuff happen and you're like, well, okay, we're gonna go out. When we first land in, in country, we're gonna shake out, right? So we go out and patrol just to get, out, get loose, get out there. And then they started getting shot at. And we're like, okay, we're gonna go there. Then we're gonna go there. Then we're gonna go there. We're gonna go there. It's like, there's so much opportunity here. And we got shut down. Yeah. Uh, was that the only operation you guys got to swing before you got shut down? Or was no, it? we had to, we, I mean, it was all like pre-planned stuff, right? So we didn't get to do any, no time sensitive targets anymore. Nothing, unless <laughs> Bin Laden showed his face, you're like, gotta go right now, go for it, clear. Yeah. Nothing. It was all like planning, pre-planning for weeks and then they'd give us the opportunity and then you go hit something and there's nothing there. Yeah. So there's a lot of video games happening and a lot yeah, of, a lot of porn pre-planning of what you're going to do when you get back. A lot of porn, yeah. a lot of yeah. porn. Yeah. <laughs> and um, getting jacked too. Yeah. We're missing the whole mission of deployment is yes. to get your body yeah. so that when you come back so the next three like weeks, you look like a team guy. You look you like a team guy. And then the next three weeks when you get home, <laughs> you destroy it all with beer. Yeah. yeah. Sleep, eat and lift. Right. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the writing on the wall then as politically you saw a little more behind the curtain and, and realized what was going on and, and that kind of drove you to to decide to transition out what was that process like it's it was you know i was such a conflicting message on my in my brain about it because i wanted to be a team guy forever i mean that was such a great job but i didn't realize that i wouldn't be able to stay with the whole platoon for my entire career yeah once it started changing and I went to a different platoon um, and started doing some leadership with that platoon and just, it's a different group. Not that they're bad or anything, it was just different. And so then I started to see that change. And then from there, it went specifically into the political side of the house. And when politics get involved in war, everything's fucked. And I am not gonna be a person who is told to do what I'm supposed to do by a fucking politician who is not there on the ground, who has not earned the right to be on that ground, and is not doing anything with us. So I was super angry about that. We weren't operating. We had just done a 18 month workup that was not easy. They're hard training, you know that deal. And then you go over there and do nothing. And so that was the point where I said, all right, I'm gonna take a break now instead of getting another pump. Master Chief actually came out to where I was and he's like, dude, you gonna ask me for another pump? And I was like, <laughs> no. Seriously, I was gonna give you another spot. And I was like, I'm gonna take a break. So I went to training command and that's when I felt so disassociated. I was doing level two stuff, so it was like Intel stuff. And it was just, wasn't for me. And I'd realized that was really the end of my road. I started to really gain some closure on, okay, you've turned and burned for a couple platoons. For me, I was good. I was like, I've done what I wanted to do. I'm not trying to be a hero here. I felt like I have done a part and it's time for me to get out and I feel like I saved my life because I walked away from the military without having as much as much of the traumas that 
you know, these fucking warriors that we served with have. Like, you know, I saw, like, you had Cole on, Cole Fackler, his friend, and he went over to Damn Neck, and he's done a shit ton more than I have, and there's a lot of guys having. I can't imagine what they have to deal with in their head. You, I mean, you can see it. You know, I mean, you can you can feel it. You can see it. It's, uh, I mean, that's the thing that uh, there's, su- there's such a strange and I would say brutal slash heartbreaking irony to the more service that guys commit to, um, you know, the, the more that battery that, that can't be recharged is, is drained, you know, that like it just, they, they give their entire fucking selves to, to this country. And, and, uh, a lot of that can't be gotten back, you know, right. and, uh, you know, to the detriment of their relationships, their, their families, their, mental health or physical health, um, you know, and, and I, I wish that that our government and the Department of Defense did a, a better and more proactive job at maintaining the, the mental health and sanity and, and balance within communities. You know, I, I get that there is a component of, hey, there's a job that needs to be done and we need guys to do it and, you know, needs the Navy and, you know, there, there's an objective and we've got to meet the objective, however, however that is. But I think you know, you, you can take a step back and say, okay, well, you know, keep that in mind when you're saying we're going to commit to this and we're going to commit to that is, Hey, you know, just because right now we have maybe enough guys to pull it off for now, you know, you can't do that for 20 years in two theaters, you know, back to back to back. And, and, you know, to me that, that should be part of that, you know, kind of business like cost benefit analysis that goes into politicians deciding whether or not to do something or not is, you know, can, can we have sustained operations? You know, do we have the manpower to, to legitimately do it on the same token, you know, the congressman and, and we'll just say the house of representatives as a whole, or, you know, the, the higher branches of government that make those decisions, you know, they can only be so responsible because they don't have intimate knowledge of our forces. That's where it falls on seal leadership to be honest with those guys and say, no, we, we can't fucking do that. You know, it's not that we don't want to, it's that, you know, we don't have the fucking resources and the manpower to be able to, to do two theaters of sustained combat operations for fucking 18 years straight, you know, and, and that ultimately falls on our leadership because, you know, they're, it, it's their word that's dictating whether or not, you know, we're getting ponied up or, or rogered up and, you know, I get that everybody wants to fucking bite off, you know, as much as they can chew and, and you know, strike while, they, while the iron's hot and, and get work and all this other shit. But um, you can you can see the, the level of of detriment that uh, is imposed on a lot of our guys, uh, you know, when they sit down and start start talking about, uh, you know, what they've been through and telling their story and stuff. And it's, and it's fucking heartbreaking. But um, so you obviously felt that. And then decided to get out what was what was your plan in getting getting out in that transition process i got offered a job as a in ready mix concrete <laughs> oh shit yeah it was uh largest ready mix company in the world actually and the guy who found or run it rent uh, was the ceo of it as a dear friend so he's gonna put me in a spot there this company and i was like dude i don't know anything about business and i don't know shit about concrete why do you want me and he's like because i know you can lead people i'm like all right pay you well say fair enough so i embarked on that mission to come to dallas texas to take that job to which never happened no shit yeah when i got out here the company was down 40 percent wow when i was on terminal leave so i found myself in a pretty precarious position because i was out of the teams i had no job no funding coming in i knew nobody here 
So it's like you can sit there and play the game of woe is me or you can get after it. And, you know, for me, it was like looking for signs of what should I be doing as opposed to what do I want to do? Um, because I know that, you know, for me, I'm a believer. So I'm like, what is, where's God leaving me here? Where's he leading me? And I had met an army ranger who was severely burned and that kicked off sons of the flag. You know, I was just having a chat with him and I did, his burns, looking at his physical burns, brought me back to the IED that I was in. But his were so much worse. And when you talk about full face disfigurement, hands destroyed, fingers missing, your whole body's been torn apart to replenish skin, and you're still in trouble, I had asked him point blank, like, hey man, what are they doing for you guys today? And he said, look at me. I was like, what do you mean, look at you? And he said, this is as good as it gets for me. I've had three dozen surgeries. This is as good as it gets. I'm like, that's some bullshit. Like, I was always in the impression in my mind during my service that if I got fucked up, they were going to take care of me and they were going to get me back to where I needed to be. And seeing that was a reality check. I was like, okay, let me go do some research. So I went and did research that night, stayed up all night long, drank a full bottle of Jack Daniels probably. <laughs> Which and is always the best fuel for that. Absolutely. Motivation fuel. So drank it, studied, couldn't find anything open source. Find any massive charity that was supporting Burns, just nothing. The next day I called him and said, dude, I've come up short. I want to give you something to help you out. Couldn't do it. What if I were to start something on your behalf? And I had no idea that this was going to be the journey that I was going on. I thought I was literally just going to start this little deal to help one guy. That's how it started. And then a firefighter from, it was a DC firefighter career guy, reached out on LinkedIn right away and said, hey, I love the, the mission that you're on. You should think about expanding it from just military and veteran to first responder as well because we get burned firefighters. And I'm like, well, hell yeah, that's awesome because my grandfather was a Detroit fireman after World War II. And like, well, absolutely. And so then it exploded on us. It went from trying to help one guy to grow into 38 states. And it was like, I don't even know what the hell we're doing and we're expanding so fast. So it's like, wow, there's a need here because the fire service, that's the number one thing. Bat, cancer, stress, those are the things that are going to kill those guys and gals. Military, during the operations and during the heavy part of the war, Brooklyn Army Medical Center, we're seeing a lot of patients. Now they're really slow because everything's done. And then civilians, you just talk about trauma and accidents. About 480,000 people in the country every year get severely burned. Wow. And there's only 300 accredited burn surgeons in the country. Jesus. So when you start looking at these statistics and you start really unpeeling the layers of medical coverage and health and how things are going, we are, as a country, we are fucking ourselves. The fact that we don't have this stuff switched on, we're a smart country. We should be doing so much better. We do so much better in so many areas and we've just pushed stuff aside that means so much. And when you get burned, it's one of the worst injuries you could possibly sustain because it doesn't end. You're always gonna have issues. If you're a child, not to mention the fact that your skin is gonna continue, you're gonna expand as you grow and get taller, but your skin's not gonna expand, so it's gonna start ripping. Not to mention the bullying and all that stuff. So I didn't know how deep of a mission this was until we started it and then named it Sons of the Flag because it was a cool poem written in World War One based off the Civil War. Talked about the North and the South fighting against each other under God and at the end of the day coming together as one. And that's what we do. We take doctors, accredited burn surgeons, and we bring them to the patients and we get them a great look and then they actually operate, perform the procedures to make them better. And we hire doctors to become burn surgeons. Oh. What, uh, what does the organization look like now as far as you know, structure, how it's organized, where it's at, all that kind of stuff. So we are headquartered out of Dallas, Texas. We have four staff, 
five staff right now. Um, I'm on the board of directors. So I'm no longer the president CEO. Um, so it's weird. It's definitely yeah. this is my first year. The 10 year mark is when I stepped down. I'm just yeah. like, it's about good though. I mean, we have really, I'm super proud of where we are. So we've got a, a president CEO. Um, we've got a wonderful family uh, that is involved now. So Zach Sutterfield, he's basically our ambassador. He uh, went through a horrific fire. It was an arson fire and was just a week into college. Changes life forever. And this kid is, this kid's going to change the world. He's not going to just change burn care. He is going to change the world. This dude's a shining star, man. I mean, he's been through a burn head to toe and he is just fire, dude. He's smiling, he's happy, and he just looks for the little blessings in life. So he's an ambassador and he's the burn survivor that's showing it. You can get better and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you. So he's going to be an ambassador and then his mother came on and they're going to be doing a burn awareness deal, fire prevention. And then we have a task force leader. So that's Greg Turnell. He's our DC firefighter who is now, he was the first guy to reach out to me and now he's full-time staff. And he runs all our team around the country. Our team is comprised, we call them a task force, but it's different firefighters, police around the country that all run their state. So they host events, they get in touch with the burn units, they get us access, help us establish ourselves in that state. He's in charge of that. And a social media website director. Yeah. So uh, where can people uh, go there, find out more and, and help out? Sonsoftheflag.org. It's pretty easy. Do you guys have any like uh, annual gala or big events that you you do yearly or? We do. We've actually had one that you came to. Yeah. 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 So it's actually the most well attended movie of the entire event. Is that People right? People still talk about it like, yes, Mike Ritland was awesome. I'm like, okay, we're going to bring him back then. <laughs> so we're just going to bring Milo and Otis as the yeah. movie this time. Oh, nice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, shit, I'd, I'd be happy to come back anytime. But uh, so we do, uh, we do a couple events this year. We got this big one we're putting together with another charity called uh, Feast. Uh, What's it called? Because we just renamed it from Country for Country, and now it's uh, Freedom and Friends. And so it's going to be out in Prosper, Texas, uh, later this year. It's on our website, sonsoftheflag.org. So anybody can come to it. You know, it's no no buy-in to come to it. Just enjoy. And then we've got live silent auctions. We play music, have country music. It'll be a really cool in the town of Prosper, down the street, oh, nice. right at the silos. Oh, that's cool. That's fun. And then we got our Stars and Stripes Film Festival lunch. And so we always honor veterans through films. We choose a film that honors veterans correctly or first responders. We bring in that person who served in that conflict to tell the real story. So the night before, everybody will watch the movie, and then they'll do a Q&A with that person on what it was like to see the movie. Oh, that's neat. And then the next day, they'll actually get to hear the real story. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Um yeah, so go to sonsoftheflag.org uh, to get more info and uh, and support them. That's a great, great mission, man. It's awesome. Thanks, bro. Uh, it's cool that you've been uh, been doing it that long, too. You know, it's, uh, it's impressive. Uh, moving on to the Bird's Eye View project, what can you tell us about that? I always realized when we were doing Sons of the Flag that it was so hard to partner with other organizations, different charities. Some wanted to, they believed that they were going to change the world on their own. And I'm like, that is the worst thinking in the world. Like, if we don't start partnering together, we're not doing any service to the people that really need it. I want to partner with everybody. I want to just like, okay, we need to drop that veteran or first responder or that person with trauma in the middle of this epicenter. And then they can circle around and they can get everything from, you know, looking at their amputations to their burns, to their post-traumatic stress, to whatever issues they have, there's an environment for them within this. And so the only way that I could gain a partnership was to start an organization that was a pass-through. And the idea for it being... Extreme sports are viral. I do extreme sports. It's one of those things where I've gone from doing it as a passion thing to actually getting paid to do it. And so what if we were to take that viral video model, we're doing something absolutely 
fantastic and extreme, like death defying, and then have everybody tune in and then hook them when they're watching it, especially the younger generation say, cool, you're going to see us do this. Why are we doing it? Here's why we got to do it. We got to give back because we need to influence our next generation to serve in some capacity. We need to influence them to be donors and good stewards of America because uh, that's our future. So how are we doing that truly? It's not just about currently what we're doing. It's how are we doing this for the future? So we do this death-defying stunt. Everybody checks it out, and then we make a pitch. Put your five bucks in here. Support these causes. We choose a plethora of causes. Do our due diligence on each one of them to make sure that they legitimately are doing what they say they do, that there's a need for it, and that the money's going where it needs to go. And then once they're vetted and approved, then they become part of Bird's Eye View Project, and then we raise the capital, and then we deploy it out to those organizations. So it's extreme sports for extreme needs. So we continue, and you can go to AmericanExtreme.com to check out the new things that we're going to do in the future for these stunts. But it became this kind of idea for us as we do extreme events at Bird's Eye View Project. So whether it be the extreme sports stuff or being an operator for a day for real, like one thing I always wrestled with is the idea is like, come be a Navy SEAL for a day. Yeah. Like, well, okay, cool. I'm, and they're like, Bird, do you want to come be an instructor for this? I'm like, yeah, sure. What do you got? I show up and you're on shooting the range. You're standing next to the rifle and you're just giving guys a couple cliff notes on how to turn the turret. They're shooting a ri rifle. And that's basically their Navy SEAL for a day. I'm like, what is this shit? <laughs> I'm not talking you have to go get wet and sandy and just run through barbed wire. But do you want to really be an operator? Like for the things that you can really know that we can tell you. So we put together this thing called the Red Coat Challenge. And it's legitimately be an operator for a day. And it's a weekend deal where you are legitimately going to be in helicopters and you are going to be fucking landing at night under NVGs and you're going to be assaulting a target. Dude, that's bad. Rad, rad shit. <laughs> where is that going down at? So it's a private, private ranch uh, just on the Red River, just south of, uh, so it's in the Texas side, but right on the Red River, about 3,000 acres out there. So it's going to be absolutely epic. Is that up like north of Paris by, by yeah. Hugo? Yeah. Oh, shit. I mean, that's uh, my kennel facility is not far from there. That's uh, That's cool. Um, how many, how many, uh, people do that? Like, is it once a year or is it, uh, yeah, we kicked it off last year and we did it differently. So this is the first year where they're doing it exactly like this. It's in teams of four. And the trick for us is we, you know, it's like to do something like this, it's a major cost to put something like this on, but we have to raise X amount of money to even think about it. So it's not like, Oh, if we raise double what we paid for it, then we win. No, that's bullshit. We have to five X what we're doing or 10 X what we're doing in order for us to put on an event. So we make it steep. So it's like, not like I go to you and say, in order for you to participate, you got to give 10,000 bucks. It's you got to raise 10,000 bucks. So we give you your own proprietary link. You spend six to eight months raising your capital to get your 10,000. And then you're officially, you get the information sent to you on where to meet oh, that's cool. and all that cool stuff. And so it's, it's teams of four. Shit. Yes. Yeah. So teams of four and you're going to be on an assault force and you're going to do operations and you're going to learn from legitimate special operators yeah. on what the real deal of the mission is. <laughs> and then... It's a weekend deal, and so hopefully we'll raise half a million bucks, and we deploy that out to these causes this year. Well, I gotta tell you, it's, uh, that's cool as shit, and it uh, kind of kills two birds with one stone that way. You know, people get uh, a life-changing experience, and you guys are helping a ton of people with it, so it's, uh, that's really cool. Um, here fairly recently, you launched the 7X Project. Uh, let's talk about that. Yeah. So... Up until 2019, January 2nd, my life was going pretty good. You know, I have a wonderful wife. I'm very blessed with two beautiful boys, five and two. They're a handful. You know, I have a roof over my head with food in our bellies. There's nothing we can complain about. Charity's doing well. You know, I've got a good life. And I got a call from a teammate 
and basically he said, David's dead. And David was my sniper partner. He was also our true north in our platoon. And it's, it's so hard to fuck with that idea because when you lose a brother, it sucks. It's terrible. But when you lose a guy that you look up to, you know, that's truly the true north in the platoon that did the things right. That was the guy that you'd always go to when you're having a bad day or you needed a question answered or you just needed somebody to talk to. He was that fucking dude and he was grounded and he worked out and he pre-planned his meals and he did shit right and he studied and he always had a smile on his face. He never fucking got into trouble. Because you want to be him and he killed himself. And... This is not the first time that I've had a teammate, you know, lose or battle this war by suicide. But damn sure, it was like, it's going to be the last fucking time that I'm going to get that call because I'm going to do something about it. I don't feel like I'm a fucking saint or like I can fix the world or any of that shit. But I know that I can get inside a problem and try to solve for it. I can try. And so sitting there that day thinking about why David did what he did without any answers, don't know. I started to think about a hypothesis of what's going on. Here was my hypothesis. There are sure some guys who get traumatic brain injuries, they get blown up, they get shot, they get fucked up, overpressure, lots of concussions, all that stuff. That's traumatic brain injury that falls in the brain category. Totally get it. Can't solve that. That's brain study stuff. But there's more to it. And it's all about physiology. They train us for our entire careers to fucking destroy our system. Our bodies are toxic. They're, they're introduced to toxins. They are treated like shit. They never teach us how to fucking heal ourselves. They never teach us how to supplement ourselves. We're always taking what everybody else is taking, and it's usually garbage. From Tijuana. Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to put that one down, okay? That was a good one. But we're doing so much to our, our systems to fucking crush them. We're yeah. not doing anything to rebuild them. And there are a few guys who step away from that and say, okay, I'm going to do better. Yeah. Guys like me. I always followed the flow and I always just destroy myself. And then I get out of service and my body's falling apart and I'm not even 30. Yeah. It's a problem. So then I look at the fire service. <clears throat> they're taking their life at a cyclic rate too. And they're not getting traumatic brain injury. So what's the problem here? It's the same result though. They're not trained to live with human performance. They're not taken care of and they don't have the information. So now how do we do this? Well, you can go look online and Google human performance and every swinging deck in the world will come up to you and say, you need this. I know what I'm doing. You need this supplement. You need this. This is the proper workout, all this stuff. And then you have people who say, all oh, that shit's wrong. So if I'm fucking struggling today and I want to change my life right now, where do I go? How do I start? And so, and we need spoon, we need shit spoon fed to us. So the idea for this became the human performance project as simple as it is. We are going to train all this year, 2022, into getting ourselves into peak shape, doing the right stuff, the right supplementation and looking at blood panels and looking at urine and looking at fecal matter and looking at all our systems, looking and checking our sleep, looking at you know athleticism, um, the mentality side of the house. We're studying our brains with the Center for Brain Health. We're doing all these functionality checks to get ourselves up to a peak shape. A couple uh, special operators from US Army, USASOC and myself, and then next year we're gonna go in February and we're gonna fucking destroy everything we just did, which would simulate a career in a combat scenario on the job as a firefighter, a police officer, somebody with massive trauma. We shatter everything. How are you gonna do that? 7X. So 
we wanted it to be something that was super hard, yet it was something super exciting that people would tune into so we could really get them ready for what we're about to unveil. So we're going to attempt to skydive then land and run a full marathon then plunge into the water so it's like sea or in land and we're going to do it in succession on all seven continents in seven days oh shit it's fucking insane dude that is insane it's nuts what uh where at on each continent do you, do you know like is that planned out yet yeah we've got all the locations antarctica we've got a few spots that we're cruising through right now so you're gonna run seven fucking marathons in seven days that's the intent, yeah. <laughs> I'm planning on it. And, you know, for me, it's like the goal is like, okay, I would love to complete it. I mean, we're going to do everything, and we're not going to complete it just onesie, twosie. Like, it's going to be a team effort. We complete together. We have all the right people in place for this thing. Like, every person on our team, it's on our website, AmericanExtreme.com. You'll be able to check every piece of this puzzle out. You'll see the team, get to know who they are. They are rock stars in their own professions. So it's not a lack of, you know, what we have on the team. But the goal is... If we make it, fuck yeah, perfect. If we go to the point where our bodies are fucking done, perfect. We're getting the results that we need on this journey. And then we're going to take all that information. We're going to utilize it to rebuild ourselves from that point on for the next six to eight months. Yeah. And then take all of this proper information that's scientific and data backed. And we're creating a manual in honor of my teammate, David Metcalf. It's going to be called the Metcalf Manual. And it is all about starting your life with true uh, longevity and then rebuilding yourself once broken. Man, that is really, really fucking cool, man. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm blown away by that. It's a, such a neat idea and, and uh, sounds incredibly impactful and, um, and fucking crazy in, in all the best ways. Um, so that I understand it right. So all seven continents, seven days, you skydive in, you run a marathon, and then is it just you're getting in the water or is it a swim also? Or So... Plunge, yeah, just get in the water. I don't really want to swim in Antarctica, so that's I've done that enough already. <laughs> so plunge, I th I always say this when people ask, like, it's just to wipe off my ass crack after the yeah. run. Oh, it's so. a, it's your uh, it's natural cryotherapy. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, for that one, yeah. we go right from well, yeah. we go right from Antarctica to like a, I think almost a hundred degrees in oh, Australia. Shit. Jesus, so yeah, it's gonna be crazy. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's a lot lot involved here. So cryo one day. Uh, Playing Sauna. great, great white shark frogger the next day. Yeah, yeah. Man, seven seven marathons in seven days. So that that's all the running and training that you're doing now. That's right. Um, what uh, I mean, I, I know you're running ten, twelve, fifteen miles a day, but is there a, like a an amount or a, a distance you're trying to put in every week? Does it scale up? How does that work? Yeah, it's scaling over the week. So we're very blessed to be working with uh, Chris Hoth, who's one of the best ultra running coaches out there. He's training us. So he actually now is going with us on the trip. So that completes, now we have seven people running with the whole time. Yeah. So it's just this battery of sevens. I was at SEAL Team 7, you know, yeah. it's just like seven, 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 seven. It's a great number. But yes, we scale up every week. So like this Saturday or Sunday, I'll do a 12 mile run. And then next Sunday I'll do a 15 mile run and it keeps going up. And kind of the peak that we're going to be going for December, January time is we're going to do 20 miles back to back. So like 20 miles a day, five days straight. And if we can achieve that, then we can hit this for when we go for it in the next month. Yeah. Give us enough time to recover from what just happened and then get into it. Yeah, it's just definitely. And then there's, you know, strength training. Um, so there's a lot involved. And then the diet, we're really regimenting diets. We're really regimenting the supplementation. We're sponsored by some awesome companies like Bubs. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard of them. Oh, yeah. They're a, they're a sponsor. I'm kidding. Yeah. So Bubs is awesome. Sean likes a great guy. We're sponsored by Thorne. It's one of the best companies in the world for product. Um, Bev2, it's uh, H2Bev, which is HydraShot. It's insane. Yeah. 
So they're great stuff. I've uh, been drinking them. And then uh, we just got Athletic Greens involved. So. Oh, nice. So we got some really cool companies. Um, we're talking to some um, crowd therapy companies, some heart rate companies, lasers, uh, looking at some of the slightly different hacking stuff. So like cold plunges and then saunas and that just to help with the, the rehabilitation and then Norma Tech. Yeah. Uh, how, uh, how often do you go through a pair of shoes? Uh, well, so, I mean, we just kicked off training, so I'll let you know in a month. Yeah, yeah, but, right. I mean, we're sponsored by Holka. Oh, nice. Uh, we've got everything yeah. from the thick soles to the smaller soles. Yeah. yeah that's pretty cool. Matt, well, it sounds like you got uh, a ton of support on this project. Uh, absolutely deserved. But uh, it's really neat to see that there's so many companies that are stepping up and, uh, and becoming a part of, of such a unique and, and awesome uh, event. Well, here's something cool. You could win a trip to go. Is that right? Yeah. To be a part of it or to watch? To go. To go on? Be a part of the whole thing. You want I'm not saying you got to run seven marathons. I'm saying come with us. Be a part of the team. So we set it up to give one lucky winner the chance of a lifetime to go on a world trip where if you basically are sitting there the next day or the next week and your buddy's like, hey, what'd you do this week? And you're like. Well, yeah, I mean, I I couldn't just watch you guys run, though. Well, so what we're doing for the VIPs that are coming with us that are helping us fund this they get to start off with us by doing a mile. So they're oh, going nice. to do a mile on each continent, and then they go do an incredible excursion on each continent. Yes, man. And so if you go to AmericanExtreme.com, there's this tab called The Chosen, and you can go buy raffle tickets, well, be man. entered in the hat. All right. And all of that money goes to support this mission. Go do that shit. I'm going to do it. Uh, what's the website again? AmericanExtreme.com. That's badass. Uh, I for sure will uh, will sign up for that. That's And cooler. it is a third-party deal that's going to draw the winning ticket yeah. so you're not going to see like somebody <laughs> yeah, so saying if, if oh I, was yeah. my teammate yeah if i win that shit they're going to be like uh, <laughs> no nah, fuck off um that's really cool man um and the it's next february you said next february. february that's really cool um amazing stuff you have going on and a ton of stuff uh you also have the legacy jump um what what can you tell me about that yeah, so it was supposed to be, so it was the first event we ever did for Sons of the Flag, because I don't like to do anything small, but I also don't like to do anything smooth either. <laughs> like, I always go the back-asswards way of doing yeah. things. You know, so one of my buddies said, write a book called Stumbling Uphill. <laughs> like, great. So, Is that Joe Biden on, uh, on, on airplane <laughs> steps or what? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the idea for me was, you know, obviously taking it to the sky. I love the sky. I love air. I love jumping. What if we were to jump a veteran from every war all at the same time? Yeah, that's fine. That'd be cool. So we did it in 2012, World War II to present day. And then we did it again in 2013 and just c- couldn't get it off the ground to like get a <clears throat> massive exposure. And I'm like, this is a big deal. Like if you look in the, in the DC-3 of this plane, it's, it's simulating Normandy. You have the last hundred years of service lined next to each other. Like that's a cool sight. Yeah. Maybe I'm just stupid and I, I'm in a really like total American, but I think it's pretty fucking cool. Oh, that's t- that's, yeah, it's so we finally got serious about it and said, all right, we got to do a full production for veterans day. COVID blew up and we're like, fuck COVID we're going. And so we planned out, I went to uh, Kansas city and I talked to the director of the Kansas city world war one mem- uh, Memorial museum. It's a beautiful monument. If you're in Kansas city, go check out world war one monument and museum. It's 217 feet. I was like, I got to jump off of it. So I went and talked to the director. He's never met me before. He's like, hey, how, how can I help you? I was like, well, I'm buddies with a friend of yours. His name's Alistair. And he goes, and Alistair served 20 years in the British um, military. And the director, uh, Dr. Naylor, he's British also. So he's like, 
you're friends with Alistair, but you're not a Brit. And I was like, I know, but we won. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so anyway, good friend. And I said, you know, what's it going to take to jump off this monument? And he says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to bring the legacy jump here. I told him about it. And he says, this sounds great. So we ended up getting Fox Live, Fox Nation, um, to join us and do it and air it live. And so we brought a veteran from every single war from World War II to present day together. We brought the all-veterans parachute team into town, Kansas City, on Veterans Day 2019. And, or 2019, or was it 20? 2020. And it was the most viewed Veterans Day program live because COVID was so bad. Yeah. And so everybody watched it, and we finally got to show the stories of these cats. But then it was like, who are these cats? What's their deal? Yeah. And so we ended up making a full documentary called Legacy Jump because it's not about the jump. The jump was a cool little piece of icing on the cake for these cats. But it was about why they did what they did. Let's go back in time 100 years and let's discuss this and let's see what's changed about the American veteran. Yeah. Nothing. That's awesome, man. Uh, were, were any or all of them tandem? All of them, all except of them. for me. Yeah. Yeah, base jumping tandem at 217 feet would be a pretty bad scenario. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, veterans will ride you up for fucking anything. <laughs> I'm a little smarter these get, days. Get some fucking 97-year-old World, World oh War II God. veteran base jumping. No, they were, they were like, I can't oh, believe you're going to do this. That's I mean, fucking It was great. nuts. It was so... What was his backstory? What's that? The World War II guy. What was oh, it? we had two World War II, two, two Korean, all over 90 years old. That's up fucking Up to 96 bad. years old at the time. Yeah. And they're still going right now. Man, that's So awesome. we're releasing the documentary this year, which is going to be great. Legacy Jump. You go to AmericanExtreme.com and you'll be able yeah. to check that out as well as it comes yeah. out. But the 90, uh, <laughs> he was a B-17 ball turret gunner. Oh, shit. And he'd never had to jump out of an airplane. Been shot at before. Did 27 combat missions in World War II successfully. Yeah. And he's like, and he came from Detroit. And that was the coolest thing about this was I asked this guy, I'd never met Pete Bilskis before. Would you come? And he's like, I don't, he doesn't know me. I'm asking him to jump out of a plane at 90. It was 88 at the time that I first asked him. And he never jumped. And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. And that's just, that shows you the vet. Like, you yeah. sign me up to support this country any day of the week till I die. So he shows up. Basically shit his pants right getting ready on the tarmac. <laughs> Seriously, I was like, need some Depends? We good? What do we got? He was like, if you give me a getaway car, I'll take it. Like, all right. So I was like, just humor me. Get up in the plane if you don't feel like jumping. Well, he got up in the plane, and he's like, I'm doing it. And he did it. And it was just like, wow. Dude, that's incredible. That's amazing. So that's that, incredible. But that breed, I mean. Yeah, that generation, uh, there's nothing nothing like it before. I don't think anything like it ever again either. It just... It was like the the pinnacle of human existence i think almost you know just have so much respect for uh, for that generation uh, some incredible people no doubt about it um, so now uh, now what other than than everything that you just told me is there anything else to, that, that you've piled on your plate uh, moving forward i mean i'm a serial entrepreneur i mess with business on the side i mean i created a patent i have a patent on a shooting device so i really told many people about it but for me, when I was training law enforcement after I got out, I was training their snipers particularly. And what I realized is that it's just, without the amount of training that a serious sniper goes through, you are never going to truly be an accurate, accurate shooter. So, and they don't have the budgets that we have in the special <coughs> warfare. So what if I were created a device that actually stabilizes you to shoot? So I created a device that stabilizes your non-dominant shooting arm so that you can actually shoot as quick as you want with stabilization and engage your target farther out. 
Oh, shit. So I've got that, and I've got that in the works right now, um, doing a licensing deal. And then I wrote a book based off of that legacy jump. So it's called Sons of the Flag. It all takes back, you know, like all the proceeds go to the charity Sons of the Flag. But it was a real accounts from the last 100 years of service. And just I narrate the book and I ask each one of the vets, like, why did you do what you do? Because that's the primary thing of these books. It's like really get into the meat of why. What's the what's the real premise of why would you fucking go into that dark alley at night when you know it's going to be an ambush? Why would you do it? Yeah. You know, because you're not being forced. Yeah. So as a new guy, you are. <laughs> but after that, <laughs> still, you volunteered to be there in the first yeah, place. Right. You know? so, so it's like, I want to tap into that a little bit more. So I asked yeah. and I wanted to know World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm. I wanted to know those types because I didn't know a lot. Yeah. You know, I know what I did only. So wrote the book and it was fun. I mean, it was a great project and I got a lot of insight out of it. And these little things, these little passion projects I do are why I thrive, you know, because yeah. I can't do corporate America. I mean, look at me. There's no way I'd get in the first day and be like, all right, what are we doing, fuckers? And then they'd be like, you're out of here. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Nothing with you, dickweed. Do I get a settlement? Do I get yeah. like a two-week, you know? <laughs> a little severance? Yeah. Uh, do you have a, um, like a, a bucket list uh, of jumps that you haven't done yet that you want to do? Yes. What, uh, what do those look like? So next year I'm going to go to Switzerland. I'm going to do ski and snowboard base, which is just insane yeah because now you got skis and you're moving at faster speeds and then you're launching off a cliff and you're hitting lines that you can't even consider so this is all wingsuit shit right uh-huh yeah. and then so if you go to americanextreme.com you can see the next couple of events that i've got lined up after the 7x human performance project which are absolutely just do ready they're nuts the miracle jump which can consist of a snowboard a wingsuit and base jumping in a series of events where kind of my idea is if you could picture James Bond going, legitimately James Bond going and buying a ticket to stand in line to watch this shit. That's yeah. what we're creating. Yeah. And so that's the miracle jump. And then we'll go right from that into back to the circus. Yeah. So it's uh, these crazy events that we're going to do and all these things have meaning. Every one of these events will generate funding for charity. And so that's what we're trying to do with American Extreme is make it essentially Red Bull for a cause. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. God, what, a, what a blast and what a, uh, a sweet synergy that, you know, kind of, is just, just a win-win all the way around. It is, except for I'm trying to keep my kids from, like, wanting to do the same shit. Oh, yeah, I mean, oh. there's no way you're going to keep them from doing that. So my jump. five-year-old came to watch me jump. They jumped at a monument. <laughs> no he shit. was mad at me for three days afterwards really? because he was not allowed to jump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're in deep shit with that one. Yes. What uh, I, I am curious, so you mentioned uh, snowboarding and skiing. I'm assuming you don't jettison or shit can that. You're jumping with that stuff, right? Or do you... Oh, you have to. Yeah. So, I mean, that. I mean, it depends on what you do. If you're going to do a hop, like you're going to pop really quickly and you want to ski some other part of the hill, you keep it on, but they create a problem yeah. right away. They're snag hazards. They're dangerous. They pendulum you. Yeah. There's a lot of issues with them. It's super dangerous. And if you get tangled in your canopy, you're dead. So, I mean, having never done that, how the fuck do you uh, get rid of those while you're flying off of a cliff and, and base jumping? So, they used to use pulley systems with, you know, like, just they would pull these cords that they had attached to them. They just ripped the cords and the skis would come off and then they're out and they would start flying or pull or whatever. Very unreliable though. So I actually found a buddy who actually made this really cool company called Bonhever, which makes snowboard bindings that it's basically you stick your foot in, lock it into place quickly, pull it right out. And I was like, well, this is cool. And I love the concept for snowboarding and skiing and that, but it doesn't work here because I got to get it off my feet immediately. Well, we took some time off 
from this project and he ended up going back and engineering it, re-engineering it for magnets. And so now with push a push of a button, it decelerates the magnet and makes it non-magnetized. Yeah. So really? it just opens up. So oh, wow. it flies right off. Dude, that's wild. So that's what we're going to do. So yeah, little tricks of the trade. Yeah. So it's just all those people coming together to do good. And that's what we're going to continue to do. Yeah. If you had to pick one, one thing to jump off of, you only get to do one more base jump for the rest of your life. What's it going to be off of? Elon Musk's rocket. No shit. Fuck yeah. Like uh, at the top? Mm-hmm. Or like at that peak fucking elevation? Wow. What a, <laughs> what a sight, man. Yeah. How, uh, how would you pull that off? Like you, you, you ride in it and then once it gets to the top, you fucking bail out? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. He's in Texas now. I'm yeah, working on it. That's fucking great, man. Yeah. I love it. Well, it's good stuff. Uh, you got a fascinating story. Um, I appreciate you sharing. Is there anything else that uh, you want to bring up or talk about? No, I mean, it's, whether you're you serve in uniform or not, I mean, you gotta you gotta you gotta own up and you gotta talk to people. I mean, that's the biggest thing. You just gotta start talking to people. For me. I've been in places where I've been depressed and all that stuff, but I've never been to the point where it was so bad that I couldn't get out of my own head Yeah, because I continually talk. Like I'm having a fucking bad day today, Mike, like sucks. How are you doing? You know, maybe give me some chair, just reach out and don't seclude yourself. I'm tired of this shit. Like I'm so tired of people living in such bad places because they can't get away from themselves. Fucking call me, call a brother or a sister, whatever. 619-302-4010. 619-302-4010. There's my cell phone. You heard you it there, think, folks. You think it's fucking that bad? You call me and we'll deal with it. Not that I'm a saint and I'm going to fix your problems, but I'm going to listen. Yeah. And you'll know that you're not the only one struggling. And so I'm just, I'm, that is my mission right now is to make sure that I'm doing my part to help us get better and everybody like us. Yeah. And it's a incredibly noble, uh, impressive and fascinating projects that you have going on there's a ton of them and uh, my hat's off to you man uh ton, tons of respect for you i appreciate everything you're doing thanks brother yeah thanks for coming on and uh sharing your story it's a great one uh for all of those uh listening if you could kind of summarize where where it's easiest to find you uh to get more information on everything that you have going on uh easiest way you can just ryan at americanextreme.com or you can go to americanextreme.com website and hit me on that it's got uh, got everything that you have going on. And then you can hit me on social media. All my handles are Birdman Actual. Okay. Well, good shit. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, for you guys, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as always, I appreciate your uh, continued and unwavering support. I wouldn't be able to do, do this without it. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, thank you again, Ryan, for sharing your, uh, your awesome story. I love everything that you have going on. If you didn't like the episode, feel free to choke yourself. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. (laughs) 
Chumba Casino has over 100 casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained. Covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.